And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Harrison Timms, who writes, Hey, John. So, I was reading an article that said there is a dispute going on between John Krasinski and his wife, Emily Blunt, against Paramount over money for A Quiet Place 2. Apparently, they're getting paid based on how much the movie makes in theaters, but Paramount later shrunk the theatrical window from 90 days to 45 days, which will affect how much they make. How serious could this get, and will it affect uh, other movie deals? Thanks. Okay, thanks a lot for saying that in, Harrison. And of course, you guys know how I feel about A Quiet Place. A Quiet Place in 2018 was my number one favorite film of the year. It was my number one best film of the year. I, and even though everybody likes A Quiet Place, I still think it's underrated. That's how good I think it is. And what John Krasinski was able to do with much of the film, not even having dialogue, the way he was able to utilize atmosphere and tension and the visuals, and it was just beautifully, wonderfully done. And I have been stoked as hell about seeing this new one. And by the way, Skylar Hillman sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Um, but, of course, this was a movie that was supposed to come out a long time ago. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting for it. They just put out a new trailer. But, Rob, along the way, he's right. They did introduce a 45-day window. Instead of putting the movie out in theaters for 90 days, it's only going to be out in theaters for 45 days before they move it over to streaming. Yep. Now, on some level, we could say, so what? But when you're somebody like John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, where you specifically signed your deal, where a lot of the money that you're going to make on this deal is dependent on what it makes at the box office. And now, after you sign that deal, they slash in half how long the movie's even going to play in theaters. That is going to affect you, if you're John Krasinski or Emily Blunt or somebody like that in that position. That's going to affect how much money you're going to make. And it can become an issue. This comes to us from the folks over at Cinema Blender, right? Some major stars sign, sign contracts with studios to receive back-end paychecks on their movies depending on how the movie does in theaters. And A Quiet Place 2's writer, director, producer, and star John Krasinski reportedly has one with Paramount alongside the film's lead, of course, his wife, Emily Blunt. However, since the studio decided it will move the movie to its new streaming service, Paramount Plus, just 45 days after opening day, the husband and wife are allegedly asking for compensation per Bloomberg's report. The couple, along with one of the movie's other producers, Michael Bay, have been seeking compensation for this decision, but Paramount has declined their request. Now, this is interesting because it brings up a scenario that we talk about a lot. Personally, you know, unless movie actors are willing to give back their salary when a movie flops... I don't personally feel like movie actors are entitled to bonuses when the movie's a hit. You get paid and you get paid well and that's that. But sometimes for a studio who may not want to pay, like let's say I'm, I'm going to pull a number out of my ass here, Rob, just for argument's sake. But let's say John Krasinski, you know, his going rate is $7 million to be in a movie. But the studio's like, we're not sure the movie's going to do so well. So I'll tell you what, John, how about we give you $4 million instead of seven, but we'll build it into your contract that you can get points on first dollar if it makes money. So you could make way more than your regular $7 million asking price, but we get to protect ourselves by only guaranteeing you four. So what do you think? 
those circumstances are actually can be pretty beneficial, Rob, both for the studio and for the actor. But what happens when you are Emily Blunt or John Krasinski and you in good faith, when the understanding is it's going to have a 90 day window and then it's going to get put out onto some kind of streaming service and Paramount pulls a move by saying, well, you know what? We're going to cut that window in half and then we're going to put on Paramount. And you're John Straczynski and Emily Blunt saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. The whole reason we took the base salary that we did, the whole reason we took the base salary that we did is because you said we were going to get X number of dollars for it playing in theaters this long. And now you're cutting in half. So I'll tell you what, that's fine, Paramount, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt are saying, but you need to give us some extra money since you're taking away what we were supposed to be making our money from. And apparently Paramount is saying no. This, Rob, could, could get very ugly. This could get very ugly. Now, it it also could be resolved within a matter of days and Paramount finally says, okay, Emily, John, we're going to sign you a check for $2 million more. Here you go. Maybe yes, maybe no. But this could become a very serious legal battle if it gets that far. And again, there's only a certain percentage chance that it does. But Rob, you're looking at this situation. Actors sign in good faith to say, we'll only take X amount of salary, but we want back-end points. And then the studio cuts the theatrical winner in half, limiting how much money they could make. I I don't know, Rob, what's your take on this whole thing? Well, I think you pretty much summed it up. But, you know, I always say, John, that in Hollywood or in any in any walk of life that you don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate. And obviously, when they made A Quiet Place 2, they already had a premiere for A Quiet Place 2 pre-pandemic. So the movie's been done. When they made the movie, they didn't know there was going to be a global pandemic. But it doesn't matter. If you've signed a contract, the studio is obligated to pay off on that contract. And it is not unusual for directors and a lot of above-the-line talent, especially the actors or a director or a writer, they get box office bumps that are built into the performance of the film. It's it's pretty industry standard. If they make a movie that if it makes more than $100 million or $200 million or $300 million, there are box office bonuses based on that. It's, it's, it's an industry standard, really, especially for people who have made uh, a previous uh, successful film in a franchise. So what has been happening, it's not just here with A Quiet Place 2. Legendary got upset when uh, Warner yep. Brothers just decided that, yep, we're going to put movies on on our streaming service, HBO Max, day and date with movies coming out in theaters. And no one knew what that was going to look like. I mean, obviously, it worked out OK for Godzilla versus Kong, but it's something that was untried. And the studios are making these decisions without consulting the talent involved with the making of these movies. Now, I get it. All the studios want to promote their streaming services. But, you know, Warner Brothers headed off that pass because they gave uh, both Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot $10 million each for Wonder Woman 84 before the movie came out as compensation. They said, okay, we understand. There's box office bumps built in. We're trying something different. So to appease our star and our, our talent, They did that as a preemptive measure, and that seemed to placate everybody, and that was all good. But in this case, Paramount literally cuts in half the potential. I mean, it ain't show friends. It's show business. And when people like John Krasinski creates a franchise like this, and by all – I mean, any review that came out after the premiere and and the trailers, this movie looks to be a huge hit. 
and it looks like it's going to outgross based on what we've seen so far its predecessor. So a box office bump can mean literally millions of dollars to the two of them, and they're married. So I think par for the course, I mean, anybody is not going to sit there and, and say, look, oh, sure, just do what you want. Let's cut our theatrical window by half. I mean, obviously, as a movie plays, there's diminishing returns and you're not going to it's not going to be obviously movies earnings are front loaded. But as this rolls out internationally and things like that, does that mean the international rollout worldwide? I mean, if you think about it, the first uh, Quiet Place outgrossed its international earnings. But unless it's day and date worldwide, they could lose a lot of money. Yeah. And no one no one went to them and said, listen, can you help us out? We're trying to build our new streaming service. I mean, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt don't care. Like when we made a deal, we're not here to support your new streaming service. We're here to support our work and the the contracts that we've signed with you. So it's not about whether or not we're supportive or team players. It's academic. Here's the contract we signed. You need to make good on this contract. That means you don't curtail our earning potential and cut it in half. It's wrong. Yeah, I agree. And something's going to have to happen. I'll be honest with you, Rob. I'm completely surprised Paramount like doesn't see this. And when Krasinski and Blunt just went to them and said, okay, all right, you did this. So pay us what those extra 45, 45 days probably would have been worth. Just cut us a check and, it's, and we'll call it a day. And Paramount yep. said no. So it's going to be interesting to see how this thing turns out. Question is for you guys. What do you think about this little turn of events? Who do you think's in the right? Uh, personally, I think it's clear that it's Blunt and Krasinski. They're clearly in the right. They deserve to get paid. I mean, it, this is not what they signed up for. It is different from the deal that they had. Paramount is trying to play legal. What do you guys think about this? Jump into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Amir. And Amir writes, Greetings, John and Rob. Some of my favorite movies to watch with my friends are the ones Seth Rogen and James Franco have done together, like Pineapple Express. I got to admit, I'm not a huge fan of Pineapple Express. I liked it, but I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, uh, this, uh, this is the end and the disaster artist. Wondering if you saw that, jo uh, that Seth Rogen is saying that he won't work with James Franco anymore because of all the sexual allegations against him. Do you agree with his decision? Do you think Franco can still have a career after all of this? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Amir. And yeah, listen, when you think about actor pairs that, you know, seem to just go together, there are a number of years where you could not talk about that without mentioning Rogan and Franco. I think they did three or four different movies together. And, you know, uh, for the most part, a lot of people, even though I wasn't huge on Pineapple Express, a lot of people love that movie, Rob, like absolutely love that movie. And I love This is the End. I think that's fantastic. But yes, of course, there there had been a lot of allegations and accusations made against James Franco and his behavior that have happened over the years, and we haven't seen Rogan and Franco work together in a while. And so when Seth Rogan was doing an interview recently, he was directly asked, we haven't seen you working with Franco. Are you still working with Franco? Are you going to continue working with Franco? 
And Seth Rogen, he answered the question. This is what kind of came out. This is from an article in Variety. It writes, allegations of sexual misconduct were made against Frankel once again in 2018 when several students at his former acting school accused him of intimidating them into sexual situations. The allegations, which Frankel has denied, turned into a lawsuit, which was settled in February. What I can say, this is now Seth Rogen speaking, what I can say is that I despise abuse and harassment and I would never cover or conceal the actions of someone doing it or knowingly put someone in a situation where they were around somebody like that. I also look back to that interview in 2018 where I commented that I would keep working with James and the truth is that I have uh, that I have not and I do not plan to right now. And he went on again a little bit more to explain that, yeah, he's, he's not going to be working with James Franco again. Now, Rob, what makes this situation kind of interesting is that Franco and Rogan didn't just do some movies together. They were kind of joined at the hip for a number of years. They they were very, very tight friends. They worked together for, for, as producers, as actors and stars. They were developing projects together, all this kind of stuff. And somebody who's that close to James Franco, look, I, I don't want to put Rogan in a spot that we don't know for sure, but if there were many people on the planet who would know if like all the allegations that started coming out against Frango had some validity, Seth Rogen might've been close enough to the situation to know if there were like, if, if there was legitimacy to those accusations and, you know, Rogan has said as, as, you know, a, a former kind of best friend, I mean, the, the roast, the comedy central roast of James Franco is one of the funniest has ever been. And of course, Seth Rogan was kind of the ringleader for that whole thing. And you see how tight those two guys are now. Rogan says, I'm not going to work with them anymore. I mean, that's, that's, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's hurtful. I mean, it's, it's as a fan of somebody who loves seeing these guys perform together, it's really unfortunate to see. But again, I give Rogan the benefit of the doubt because he's kind of really that close to the situation. And I think a lot of movie fans are going to be disappointed not to see them working together again, but maybe it's rightfully so. I don't know, Rob, mm. you see this situation, you hear what Rogan is saying and you know, what do you make of this? What's your take on all of it? Well, I mean, first of all, Evan Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen are hugely successful. Um, you know, their TV careers, whether it's Preacher, whether it's The Boys, their movie careers, uh, well, so Rogen's movie career in front of the camera, they're very, very successful. And they've spent years building a brand. And, you know, they have no control over what collaborators may do in their off times. And I think the way the way our society is going, you 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 have to be careful about the people that you associate with and the work that you're doing because you know they can torpedo it's they can torpedo years worth of hard fought work with allegations like this and it's it's unfortunate i'm sure seth rogan would rather this not be the case but i don't see that he has much of a choice you know it's not like until either james franco is exonerated or or it's proven that that maybe these things these these were blown out of proportion, uh, or or something. I think he doesn't have any choice but to distance himself from the past relationship he had with James Franco because you know he's not his brother's keeper. And if James Franco, you got to be a person that you got to be a big boy and assume responsibility for your actions. And that doesn't mean that your friends need to stand by you and compromise all their work. 
unless you know they know you're innocent and they you've been wrongfully accused and then they can stand up and say he's been wrongfully accused he's he's innocent and it's such a strange thing to me because you know James Franco has been cultivating this idea of this ambiguous sexuality for a while <laughs> i'm like it's it's such an odd the situation is an odd thing and i i just wonder you know it's just unfortunate all the way around and i'm sure Seth Rogen isn't happy about it but why should he have to compromise what he's been doing on his own as a producer and as a writer and as an actor and have all of that destroyed by his association with somebody that's currently under investigation for, for malfeasance. And, you know, yet remember too, like Rogan has gone on to become incredibly successful from as a producer too. Like a yeah, lot of people forget I mean. like him and Evan, they're producers of the boys. They're also the producers of invincible. Like they've got a lot of stuff. They, they were behind the preacher series that a lot of people love the stuff that they did there. So they've got a lot of stuff going on and it is, it is really unfortunate. And Rogan goes on in that interview to say, yeah, my personal relationship with James has taken a real hit as well. Uh, because, and again, as somebody who's been that close to James, it's, it's really interesting. Anyway, guys, it's a, it's an unfortunate series. Cause listen, I'm, I'm, I'm just got as just strictly a movie fan. I very much enjoy James Franco's work. Me too. I think he's very gifted and very talented. So strictly as a movie fan, it's great to see. So it's really unfortunate uh, to hear about not great to see his work. I mean, but so it's really disappointing and unfortunate to hear about a lot of the stuff. And then when you hear somebody who's as close to him as Rogan has been kind of saying, yeah, like I, I don't not believe the accusations against him and, and I'm really close to him. So I don't know. It's an interesting situation. Anyway, guys, question is for you. What do you think about this entire situation and Seth Rogen saying he's not going to work with Franco and that his relationship with Franco is taking a hit, all that kind of stuff. What are your feelings on this matter? Jump on down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys, with that down, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by uh, Vincat M, who writes... Wrath of Man was awesome. Just awesome. Uh, me and my friends saw it and immediately came back uh, in the nighttime to see it again. The movie made just $8 million opening weekend, and I wanted to know your thoughts on it, if that should be considered a good result or not. What do you think? All right, man. Thanks a lot for sending that in. And yeah, listen, I, you guys, if you follow and subscribe to my YouTube channel, which of course, if you're not, you totally should be. You guys know I put up my instant quick out of the theater reaction to Wrath of Man, new Jason Statham film being directed by Guy Ritchie. Of course, they have worked together before to great effect with things like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, one of my top 20 films of all time, Snatch, as well. So, And I just love Guy Ritchie. And Guy Ritchie has shown he can do other things, too. He just did Aladdin, which I thought that was the strangest director choice, but it worked out great. And then one of my favorite films of last year, The Gentleman, which I thought was fantastic. So I went in. This movie was not what I was expecting, but damn, I had a good time with it. I thought this movie was really enjoyable. It was much darker than I thought it would be, but I had a thoroughly good time. It ranked out an A- minus uh, cinema score. It, it looks really good, and it made $8 million. $8 million. Now, when we hear about things like Mortal Kombat making $20 million. <laughs> we, we It's a fair question to ask. 
is $8 million a good result for something like Wrath of Man? And I would actually say yes and no. On the yes side, you got to remember, Jason State, there was not a lot of hype going into Wrath of Man. This isn't a superhero genre sort of thing. There's no giant sharks in it. There's no giant robots destroying the city. And Jason Statham has made a lot of these smaller scoped little action films. And so I want to look at and compare to how has Wrath of Man done compared to some of those. So we go back and we look at things like Parker. It's, it's kind of a similar thing, a small, less type movie that kind of put out. Parker made $7 million in its opening weekend. Homefront, which, by the way, had James Franco. Uh, Homefront was, which a lot of people like, by the way, Homefront. But again, it was a smaller kind of hyped movie, not revolving around superheroes or giant sharks or whatever. It also opened to $7 million. The Mechanic, which I actually really like, and oh my God, Ben Foster's amazing in that movie. But so the mechanic came out more of a, a little bit more of a higher profile, big actioneer kind of thing, made $11.4 million. So what I would say, Rob, when asking the question about, so is $8 million for something like Wrath of Man, when we are still in the tail end of a pandemic, when we still don't have theaters of capacity, when there are still a lot of people a little bit nervous about going back to the theaters, when you see it kind of averaging out with what previous Jason Statham films did that you could kind of categorize in the same vertical, it's actually not a bad result. It's actually not bad. However, the not such positive light about it is the fact that it was a $40 million film. Right. Now, actually, let me rephrase that. I've, I've seen anywhere between... Um, uh, 35, 35 and $40 million is how much it cost is what I'm kind of seeing it jumping around as to how much it costs. Now, worldwide, as of right now, made $8 million in its, in its domestic. Worldwide, it's already made 25.7. So it's already made well over half of its budget in just its first little opening. So is it okay? I, I would qualify it as this, Rob, in asking is $8 million a good opening weekend or a bad opening weekend? For Wrath of Man, I'm going to say it's okay. I, I think it fits right into where those other films of his has uh, opened. You still have to keep in mind the pandemic issues that go along with it. It has made well over half its of, of its operating budget, and it's just its first weekend worldwide. So I'm not going to call it a hit. I'm going to say it's an okay opening, and maybe even a little bit better than I expected it to do. But Rob, I'm telling you, I loved this film. I really, really. It's, it's not as good as Lock, Stock, <clears throat> or Snatch or anything like that, but. I really thoroughly enjoyed this film. It's very dark. Um, it's it's got it's there's a great revenge element to it. Not the film you were expecting to see, and I had a good time with it. Anyway, Rob, you're sitting there now, and you're looking at the box office results come in. You're seeing eight million dollars for it. How would you evaluate that if you're the st- one of the studio heads there? Well, again, you know, it, it would all be based. I'm I'm on Box Office Mojo. They don't have the budget of the film reported. But to me, obviously, John, the success of a movie is always based on well, how much did it cost and how much did they spend on the marketing of the film. But I think this is probably a pretty solid result. It opened at twenty five million dollars worldwide, and people really like this movie. The word of mouth on this film is very good. And um, uh, across the board, I haven't seen anyone that and people have been surprised by just how good it is. That's what I've seen. So I'm sure it might have some legs, especially internationally because of its action content and its 
it's the kind of thing that probably is going to play well around the world. So I don't think this film was designed, you know, it's not a $150 million movie that they expect to make a billion dollars. And, um, I mean, sure, every studio wants their movies to open bigger. Even if they make $500 million their opening weekend, the studio's like, well, we could have made six. But so I think somebody will say, well, you know, it opens soft, but they know that we're in this pandemic. So I would say, I would say this was a pretty good result, not a great result, but a pretty good result being what it is and being in the time that it opened. But then again, I could be wrong because it might have cost a lot more money than I thought, but you've seen it. I have, and I'm dying to see this movie. The gentleman was one of the last movies I saw before lockdown. I saw it with you. <laughs> I'm a Guy Ritchie fan as you are. And this looks like a little change of pace for him, but boy, it certainly looks like, and from what I've heard from you and others that he knocked it out of the park. So I'm I, think, I think it really, a very different kind of Guy Ritchie film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, again, 35 to $40 million is what I'm reading that they spent on it then. I really don't think they spent much in the marketing. I saw very, very little marketing right. for this film. So it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. The question is for you guys. What do you think about Wrath of Man and its opening weekend? Did you have a chance to see the film? What did you think about it? I, I really enjoyed it a hell of a lot. And I actually think $8 million opening is, is okay. But maybe you guys think differently. What it is that you guys think, jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number four. And our fourth main topic today gets submitted to us by Shane Doyle, who writes, Looks like the battle between YouTube and Roku just took an interesting turn. Since Roku has removed YouTube TV off their platform since they can't make a deal, YouTube just announced that YouTube TV will be added as a separate section on the regular YouTube app. Is this even legal? Did YouTube just find a sneaky way to get around the rules? All right, James, thanks a lot. Or Shane, thanks a lot for saying that in. And yeah, this situation continues to get more and more interesting, Rob. So for, let's, let's back up a little bit for some context. So YouTube TV is, of course, YouTube's uh, live TV streaming service. So if you have YouTube TV, you can, like, look through all the different channels, you know, CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, whatever, and you can watch live TV, but on your television. And there are other services like it. Hulu Live has the same service. Um, Sling has a service. DirecTV has that same kind of service. There's a lot of them out there that do things similar. But that's YouTube TV. Roku has entered, has been in a little bit of a dispute with uh, with uh, Google over YouTube TV and, you know, the rights and trying to re-up it. And they've come to an impasse and they've both been sending out emails to their subscribers saying, Roku saying, YouTube is being awful. YouTube TV is being awful. YouTube TV saying, Roku is being awful. And it basically kind of crescendoed last week, Rob, into the situation where Roku took YouTube TV off of the Roku store. Now, if you have YouTube TV on your Roku already, Roku said, we're not going to remove it. You can keep using it if you've already got it installed. While, and they said, we continue to work with Google to try to come to a resolution. Google has said, we're going to continue to work with Roku to try to come to a resolution. But then this really interesting move happened where Google just went, you know what? Fine. 
we're going to make YouTube TV a part of the regular YouTube app. This comes to us uh, from the folks of Variety who wrote about the whole scenario, basically laying out that YouTube TV, for those who use Roku, there's going to be a little sidebar. A little sidebar thing that says go to YouTube TV from within the existing YouTube app. And you're going to be able to then open YouTube TV and use it as normal. Because what's Roku going to do, Rob? You think Roku is going to remove the YouTube main app? No. YouTube is the most used thing on any streaming platform. I mean, yeah, Netflix is up there. Disney Plus is up there. All that kind of stuff but they're all way overshadowed by use of the YouTube app. Roku can't exist without the YouTube app on there, and they ain't about to take it out. And so Roku sent out statements saying, this is just another example of Google using its monopolistic predatory practices to take advantage of the marketplace. And YouTube TV and Google are saying, no, 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 we still want to work with Roku. We want to work out a deal, all this kind of stuff. But this was a very interesting, sneaky move by Google to say, okay, You're going to take away the YouTube TV app? All right. We're just going to build the YouTube TV right into the regular YouTube app. How do you like them apples? Rob, listen, I'll be honest with you. I can completely see both arguments. I really can. I totally see where Roku is coming on this. And I totally see where Google is coming in on this as well. It is a dilemma that they need to get worked out. And both sides right now say they are continuing. They want to reach a deal. Both sides are saying they're continuing to negotiate. They got to figure this out and they do need to figure it out. But still, it's interesting. And Rob, I don't think this is going to be live. We've been hurry hearing about, you know, friction between Amazon Fire Stick and HBO Max, between Roku and YouTube. And I don't think this is over, Rob. You and I did, you know, a, a story last week where we talked about we could totally see a future where all the streaming services just put their own devices out that say, hey, if you want to watch our service, you got to use our device. But I know, Rob, you've seen this whole story now. YouTube TV is now a part of the YouTube app. I don't know. What do you make of this and how do you think this is going to resolve? Well, you know, it, to me, it, it all as everything, it all comes down to money and who's getting what and how much they're providing and what they're going to pay for. And I, I get it. I mean, I, I totally understand where these disputes arise, but ultimately it really comes down to the fact that consumers, we don't, we don't particularly care about what parent, what parent company is making money off what thing we just want to stream our damn shows. And when you when you get something like a Roku, you expect it to work a certain way. And then when something happens and it changes up what's available, you ask yourself, why did this happen? What kind of why is somebody inconvenienced me? I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I haven't done anything different. So I think these companies need to be they need to tread carefully during these disputes because ultimately consumers will get fed up and they will they will they're not going to put up with it because as we've talked about a lot on this show, John, people are going to go. The one thing that gets people to stream is if somebody's streaming something they want to watch, period. They don't particularly care where it comes from or who delivers it. But if you have something that's been delivering something and then it's taken away, well, then you get pissed. And then things that then you you've got your consumer base that you rely on to make the money you want to make in the first place, then it gets compromised. So I think these kinds of disputes where then they somebody threatens to do this or then that and then they yank a service that's been provided. 
The only thing you're doing there is pissing off your consumer base. And this isn't something that is necessarily something they should be doing. And I think they've got to figure that out. How do you think it's going to resolve? I think they're going to have to I, – I, look, the more they make these changes and workarounds and crazy stuff, I don't think that's solving the problem. I think that that people are trying to do an end around or they're trying to do – I think it needs to go back. They need to figure out how to make this work the way it was working in the first place, not these backdoor shenanigans or we're going to try and rejigger how we're going to do this. So I think they need to figure out how it's all going to work and how it was working before and make it the way consumers want it. That's that's what they're going to have to do. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I, again, I, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to guess by next Monday they will have reached a deal. I think yeah. YouTube and Google, I think Roku and Google both know that this is not a good look for either of them. Nope. And they're going to, I think they'll get it resolved by next Monday. But uh, Rob, I also don't think this is the last dispute that we're going to hear oh. either between no. Amazon Fire Stick and one of the services or Roku and one of the services. It's there. We are still, Rob, we are constantly reminded that we are still in the very, very early infant days of the streaming wars. And a lot of this is the Wild West, and they're still just trying to figure out how, like, just the, 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 the dynamic of the relationship between the streaming services and the streaming platforms. Yep. How is that all really going to work? It's going to be interesting to see. Anyway, guys, question is for you. What do you think about this unfolding drama, this continuing ongoing friction between Roku and some streaming services, in this case, YouTube TV? What do you think of YouTube's uh, new temporary fix of putting YouTube TV right into the YouTube app? What do you guys think is going to happen? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's do a fifth main topic today here, shall we? And this kind of is a little bit of an off the top because this just dropped this morning. We have been waiting for, and yo, it's happened, a brand new, first of its kind, Venom, Let There Be Carnage trailer has officially dropped. And I'm not going to bury the lead. I freaking loved it. I loved it. But but here's why. Take this with a caveat. The original Venom movie, a lot of the critics didn't like, but a lot of the audience did. And it went on to be a smash success, made over $800 million, I believe, at the box office, which is, you know, everybody swore up and down. Venom will never succeed. It'll never work because Spider-Man's not in it and blah, 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 blah. Thing made over $800 million. And the reason it made over $800 million is because the majority of the audience found it delightful. You know, you take somebody like my wife, Anne, and she just well, goes bonkers for that movie. And one of the things that really worked for her in the movie was the, the amount of charm and humor that they had to it. A charm and humor that doesn't work for everybody, Rob. Doesn't work for everybody. But for a lot of the, the casual movie-going audience, that charm and humor they put in that first one is why that movie made $800 million. Yes. You know, it just appealed to a lot of those people. And so myself and Anne are watching this trailer, and they start off with tastes of that humor. And my wife's like, my new number one most anticipated movie of the year. I'm like, okay. And I thought the trailer was really good. I think they showed a really nice balance, if you will, I think they showed a really good balance between, you know, that charming humor that they had in the first one, but also saying, hey, guys, hey, 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 it's not, this is not just going to be 
let's laugh along with Tom Hardy two hours. Right. There's also carnage in this thing. And they gave us just as a good first trailer and only a first trailer, they gave us great glimpses of the carnage we're going to get. I actually really, I was surprised they actually showed the dude in the uh, execution chair as they're about to put him to death. And then you see the red come out and block the poisons from going in and then the freaking out. And, you know, I think a lot of people, all of us have been very excited about Woody Harrelson playing Cletus. I think there could be something very good there with that. So I got to say for me, I know it's not going to be for everybody, but what is interesting though, when you go over to the Venom trailer right now, it's, it's got an over 99% approval rate at the moment. So the, 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 the movie going audience seems to be really liking this. It has 1.8 thousand dislikes compared to 208 thousand likes at the moment. So it's running over a 99% clip right now. So again, it just seems like the general movie-going audience is responding to this. They're liking what they see. I like it. But Rob, just like the first movie was not for everybody, and they clearly were saying, what worked for us in the first movie? Let's bring that over into this one. Uh, What I said to you before the show started was, I have a feeling that people who enjoyed the first Venom movie are really going to like this trailer. And for people that the first Venom movie didn't quite work for them, I'm not so sure that this trailer is going to work for them either. That's kind of my take on it. But anyway, Rob, you saw the first trailer. How do you see people responding to it? How do you respond to it? What are your thoughts? Well, obviously, I think Venom was an unexpected hit that people really dug. And I have to say, I mean, it opens with, I wouldn't have thought that a trailer like this would open with somebody making breakfast in this case, (laughs) (laughs) in this case, both Tom Hardy and Venom making breakfast together. And clearly Venom's now a part of the neighborhood. Everyone seems to know him, you know, and I have to say it was amusing. It wasn't exactly what I had thought they would lead with, but I chuckled (laughs) like, you know, I thought it was funny. And, and then we see glimpses of action and things. Obviously, the CG is going to be further refined and, and, and things like that. But but I think this kind of it captured the spirit of what we're going to get. You know, yeah, I agree. And I, I can't I can't deny that. Look, did I think I know you love the trailer. I thought it was um, it was long on goofiness, uh, but <laughs> it, kinda, it made me want to see it. I was like, all right. I'll watch this movie because I didn't expect to chuckle as much as I did with that opening. And they spent a a lot, a lot of the trailers that making breakfast scene, you know, more than you would normally expect from a a first teaser, a first look. But I admittedly, I, I was intrigued. I laughed and and carnage. I look, I can't believe we're getting a carnage and venom movie. Honestly, (laughs) just all right. I'll watch this. But I yes, think I will. the key here, Rob, is going to be, I mean, look, appeal to the people that love the first movie. Hey, guys, listen, that charm, that humor that you liked in the first one, we've got it. Like when Mrs. I, I can't remember the name of the, the there was Mrs. Kim or Mrs. Lee that runs the convenience store. And she says, the chocolate is late. And all you hear is Venom voice. No, <laughs> you're right. My, my, <laughs> my, my wife laughed her ass off when that happened. Right. But. The key is going to be that while you're appealing to those people who the first movie worked for, people like me, people like my wife, things like that, the movie itself is going to have to make sure it strikes that balance of, yeah, okay, have that humor and have that charm. But remember, this movie is also called Venom, Let There Be Carnage. 
And to me, it was a nice mixture. They did mix in the, the, the you know, the breakfast scene with an execution scene with uh, complaining about there not being chocolate with people looking terrified and our first images and glimpses of what carnage is going to, and by the way, let me bring up this image again, because when you had to think about, man, how can they make carnage at least look right in this movie? They seem to have gotten that. I mean, I, I I don't hear a lot of people complaining about the look of Carnage. So the Carnage at least hits a good look. And Rob, I think if they, if, if, and this is the big if, and this will determine whether this movie's really successful or not, I think. If they can strike that balance of the charm, the humor from the first film that people really liked, with a lot of the visceralness that a lot of people are looking forward to with a Carnage being in it, if they can strike that balance, this is going to be another... You know, I mean, COVID and the theater industry being where it is, notwithstanding, but instead of $8 million, let's change the bar to maybe like six fifty. This could be another $650, $700 million smash hit for them going yeah. into it. But to me, the key is being able to hit that balance. Rob, what do you think the key for this Venom project is going to be, now that you've taken a peek at the trailer, for this thing to really work once it actually opens? Well, I, I mean, I think it has to there's a certain expectation by bringing a character like carnage front and center along with venom. This has to provide viciously bonkers thrills and whatever battle between these two characters is the result. It's got to be pretty over the top and it has to be lots of fun. I would imagine mm -hmm. many people die. <laughs> there's, there's lots of destruction of some kind and, and it's going to have to – I mean, it's almost got to be – you know, in a way, this is going to seem strange to say, but I love Beverly Hills Cop. And Beverly Hills Cop is the perfect balance of action film and comedy. It, it does a really good job of threading a line. It, it doesn't shy away from gun battles and car chases and R-rated action. But at the same time, it's really funny. And I think that – Venom, let there be carnage is going to have to do that very thing. It's got to be really irreverent. It's got to go into daredevil or pardon me, a Deadpool territory. And I expect when these two characters are on screen, it's got to be, it's got to be bonkers, man. I mean, it's got to provide, you have to have that kind of, you're going to be laughing at the same time going, Oh my God, I can't believe they just did that. It's got to have that balance. And it, that's, if anybody could do it, I think Andy Serkis can because I keep thinking about the Gollum Schmeagel scene in uh, Two Towers. Yeah, you know, and and if he can bring that uh, that thing, whatever he was doing in the performance when he's talking to himself, because uh, that's kind of the appeal. Venom has a lot of Gollum in in it. Yeah, that dichotomy and, is going to be really key. Yeah, it's going to be really, uh, and that, I think I think Andy Serkis from just looking at this. Uh, it's although it's going to be tough, John, because if it goes too far, yeah, it might not work. It's got to have that balance. The balance is crucial. So, guys, the question is for you. What did you think about the Venom trailer? Right now, it's holding a 98 point, sorry, 99.1% approval rating so far. But again, it's much like the first film that wasn't for everybody and didn't work for everyone. Maybe it didn't work for you. But overall, I think there's a lot of props. And we got to remember here, Rob, this is still just the first trailer. This is just trailer number one. 
You know, they just gave us little glimpses. I'm looking forward to seeing what else we see along the way. Questions for you guys. What did you guys think? What do you think is going to be the key? If this thing's going to be as successful as the first film, what do you think the key to that success is going to be? I think it's striking the balance between the humor and the visceralness. What do you guys think is going to be? Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With all that down now, let's move on and start taking your live comments and questions. And once again, if you want to get in a live comment or question on the show, simply use the tip link in the description below. You can just click on it there, or you could enter it in manually at streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. Again, you'll be getting your comment or question on the show if it's appropriate to use on the show. And of course, you're supporting the channel as you do it. And all of us here at the John Cabus Show, thank you guys very, very much for that support. Okay. Let's get over to it, shall we? And we're going to start taking your live questions. We're going to start things off with, oops, I got uh, I got to go back down to the bottom here. Here we go. Russell Amador writes, hey, John, as well as we all know is probably what it meant, the internet is undefeated. So I stumbled across a meme that has the four signifying Fantastic Four at the end of the Marvel trailer. But in reality, it was a hint at Captain America four. Imagine if that was what was actually being teased. Um... Rob, fire and pitchforks. If it turns out that that little Fantastic Four logo logo was really just a joke and it's actually a a foreshadowing of Captain America 4, the the Disney offices in Burbank will be besieged by very, very angry fans. But (laughs) don't worry about it. That's not what's actually happened. Kevin Feige specifically said Fantastic Four at that Disney investors call meeting. So that is still there. Rob, speaking of Fantastic Four, though, one of the only movie that didn't have a date attached to it in that Disney going back to the movies trailer was Fantastic Four. I'm thinking it's going to come out in you know, third quarter 2023. Do you think it could come out then or do you think it's going to push to 2024? Mm, I, I think, no, I think that's probably a good bet because, you know, they've got these movies down uh, to a science in terms of, they. I don't think you're going to have to necessarily wait two and a half years. I, I think that late 2023, I think we can expect, I mean, we're only, we're, we're only in the fifth month of 2021. So if they announce, I think, I think we're going to have an announcement at least by the end of the year. I wouldn't be surprised if Fantastic Four goes into production early to mid 2022 for release in 2023. That's what I would expect. I agree. All right. Next up, we've got uh, the Wakandan Forever rights. Unbroken bare knuckles boxing documentary. It's free on YouTube. Is that the one about the Irish clans? If it is, I've seen it. Um, I was enthralled. It reminded me of the good old days of early UFC. That is my favorite era. It takes a different type of person. I know you train MMA. Would you ever fight with no gloves? No. I mean, because really what a lot of people forget is the gloves aren't there to protect the person you're punching. The gloves are there to protect you. Like they're to protect you from busting open your, your fingers and your knuckles and all that kind of stuff. So no, no, if I was in like, if we were doing something like that, no, I would not. I don't think many people would. I mean, yeah. And by the way, if it is the same documentary I'm thinking of unbroken about like the Irish, the Irish clans who have had like blood feuds for like hundreds of years, it's actually really pretty interesting. You might want to check it out. All right. Next up. Casey McNatt writes, uh, Hey, John, long time no see. Uh, last night I went back to the movies and actually got to see Scott Pilgrim versus the world in a Dolby theater. That movie is so fun every time I see it. Also saw Mitchell versus the machines a lot better than I was expecting. Yeah, when me, Rob, me and uh, uh, my friend Ryan, we went to go see Wrath of Man. 
And I was a little bit perturbed at first because I couldn't find it. Why is it? Why can't I get tickets for, for it in the Dolby Theater? Oh, because they're doing that thing with Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim is awesome. You've heard me talk about that for so long. And it was so great. that It's great that you had a chance to go back and watch it on the big screen again. But Robbie also mentions Mitchell versus the Machines. I finally, Ann and I last night sat down and watched Mitchell's versus the Machines. It's Pixarian. I mean, it's a Sony animation thing, and this is the highest praise I can give it. It's very Pixarian. It, not just, I'm not talking about the animation style. This is a movie that has incredible humor, great heart. It's got actual tender moments. It's a beautifully and wonderfully done, fun, entertaining ride of a movie. I really enjoyed it. Now, if it were a Pixar film, would I say it's in the top, you know, five Pixar films? No, but it's very good. It's very, very good. And I'll, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'll just say this one line and I'll say, watch for it in the movie. Oh, no, it's the lavender one. She's found us. For those of you who have seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And I laugh my ass off. When you see the movie, you'll know what we're talking about. I really enjoy it. Rob, I don't know. Have you had a chance to see this Mitchell versus the Machines yet? Because everybody's talking about it. Have you had a chance to watch it yet? No, but I, it, again, it's one of those things where word of mouth has made me interested in seeing it because it's it's been getting such praise. It's really – it's, it's ba- the basic premise is it starts with – you know, this young girl and her family and the girl is getting ready to move away to the West Coast of Los Angeles to go to the Los, to go to the California film school. And she wants she's got a dream of being a filmmaker and a robot apocalypse breaks out. It it's really good. It's just I was very this. It's a movie that should have been on the big screen. It's a movie that should have been on the big screen, but it's on Netflix. Go and check it out. I think you guys will be happy that you did. All right. Uh, let's move on here. Next up. We've got uh, Casey McNatt also writes. Also, I wanted to point out that Shudder just announced on June 8th that they will put out the lost 1973 George Romero film, The Amusement Park. Saw a trailer for that, and it looks creepy and interesting. More stuff to look forward to in June. Rob, I know you're a big fan of Shudder. Like, what's your take on this? Well, you know, I'm a huge Romero fan, too. And between seeing this and getting a new transfer of... of, uh, Romero's vampire movie, Martin, which I love, coming out from Second Sight in the UK along with the, the how they put out Dawn of the Dead. I, I'm deliriously excited to see this movie. And he made it – it was not made as like a horror film. Apparently it was made as a sort of a, a, an examination of what happens to old people, you know, and, and so – but he went in a different direction with it. And uh, I, it, I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Next up. We've got John's moist movie review. (laughs) Because, of course, last week we were joking about the word moist. Anyway. Hey, John. In terms of Deadpool 3, I've always wondered uh, that if it is going to be rated R and not part of the MCU canon, then why is it taking so long? Why not just let Reynolds and creative team work on it and give them creative control if you're Feige? Well, uh, first of all, um, good luck. Kevin Feige is never giving over creative control. Because in Kevin Feige's mind, the reason we've made Marvel and the brand and everything that it is is because we've maintained very strict control over it. So he's not about to just let somebody, yeah, yeah, go what, whatever. Yeah, let's put the Marvel logo on it, but I don't have control over it. You do. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And by the way, we do not know. All we know about Deadpool 3 right now is that it will be rated R. We do not know that it is not going to be part of the MCU canon. 
I don't think it should be. I think there's a decent chance it won't be, but it very well could be part of the MCU canon. So keep that in mind. But, you know, well, what's taking so long? Well, have you looked at Marvel's lineup? Have you seen how much stuff Marvel has coming? But Rob, it's not just Marvel. Do you know how much stuff Ryan Reynolds has coming? <laughs> a lot. He just finished Red Notice. He's got this thing called, uh, oh, let me look at something parenting with the director of the uh, Paddington movies, which are uh, fucking amazing. The Paddington yep. movies. P- pardon my French here. Uh, let me just look this up here. It's called the uh, it's called uh, the Adam Project. I believe that's it. No, no, no. It's called the Every- Everyday Parenting Tips. He's got a movie coming out with the director of Paddington and Paddington 2 called Everyday Parenting Tips about how to parent your child when there's a monster apocalypse happening, which looks amazing. He's got his Clue movie that he's working on with uh, with a couple of guys as well. They're still developing that. He's doing a Christmas Carol movie with um, Will Ferrell. He's doing that. Uh, then he's got this other thing called uh, The Adam Project, which I was mentioning before. Rob, a movie, if you're also involved in the behind-the-scenes stuff on it, and a movie can, take, can keep somebody occupied from eight months to two and a half years. One. Ryan Reynolds has Red Notice coming up with this Adam Project, Everyday Parenting Tip, Clue, Christmas Carol. So it's not just Marvel. It's also Ryan Reynolds' dance card is very, very full right now. So, yeah, it we may not see a Deadpool 4 until late 2023, yeah. 2024. I don't know, Rob. What? How do you see this thing shaking out? And where do you uh, – is it understandable wow. that we haven't heard anything yet? I think so. I mean, you know, when did Free Guy get moved to – it's still this summer, right? Did it get moved to this? I think it's I think it's in December now. I'll look it up, but it's I think it's December. In December. Yeah, I mean, I, I just the guys the guys unstoppable, and 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 how many Mint Mobile ads? Sorry, is he gonna August thirteenth. August thirteenth okay, is August when it's scheduled to come out. Yes. Yeah, and and how many Mint Mobile ads is he going to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, he's he's the guy. The guy. Look, he's he's. It, we're in a a Ryan Reynolds era. And I think when you've got the when you've got that moment, you have to seize it and make of it what you can. And he certainly is. And uh, good for him. I mean, and I like what I really like is the diversity of projects. When I say diversity, the different kinds of movies that he's looking to make, you know, the the hitman's bodyguard's wife or whatever. I can't wait to see that. I mean, that looks good, you know, and I like the first one. And I I'm I, I'm a Ryan Reynolds fan. So yeah. I'm all for it. And you know what I'm going to say next, right? Good Canadian kid. Good Canadian. Yeah. Good Canadian kid, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, very busy. Hitman's bodyguard's wife coming out. Free guy coming out. Then he's got like four other projects that are already on the tablet, and then he's got Deadpool three. So it it still may be a little while. It still may be a little while. All right, what's next? Next up here, we've got um, Tim Tracy writes. Okay, John. Hopefully this isn't a dumb question, but I live the Fast and the Furious franchise and all their ridiculousness. But a new clip that just came out of the stunts they performed in the movie. The magnet stunt in particular, they show being done practically. Why add the CGI and make it look fake? Just a curious question. Thanks and bring on the ever-loving filthy. I know that there of Rob, I saw, I got an email from the publicity department saying, hey, we've got this new kind of behind-the-scenes thing look at, at some of the stunts are done. I haven't watched it, though, to be honest with you. Um, so I don't know, but clearly they felt that 
the CGI was required to make it look the way they wanted to make it look. Although I haven't seen this little this little snippet. Rob, have you seen this little I behind have. the scenes? What, what, yeah. what? How would you answer Tim on this? Well, I mean, here's the thing: when they're doing things practically, um, like sending a car through a, a wall, like through it with a magnet, there's still there's a lot of work that needs to be done. A lot of the time, you have to remove. Uh, pulleys or you have to remove things that are launching cars in the air or there's still a lot of CG to use. And I think the best way to do it is, well, I mean, <laughs> it's really hard once you've done something that's outlandish to make it look perfect because we know what the real world looks like. And you might have a shop that's beautifully executed. It's a physical shot that's augmented with CG, but there's just something about it that you know in the real world that could never happen. And it could be the best special effect in the world, but the actual thing that's happening, your mind will tell you that, now nah, that's not real. And, and so I think a lot of when people say, oh, it's bad CG, I think a lot of the time that's kind of what they're responding to. But then a lot of the time there's just bad CG. But right. I think with that behind the scenes, dude, that behind the scenes uh, footage of what they're doing, I mean, it's got cars being launched into the air by different methods. And and there's a you realize that there's a lot of practicality that goes into these Fast and Furious movies. But, you know, there's a lot of augmentation, CG augmentation that happens. I mean, the, the more real they can keep it, the better it the better off it is. But it's still a really hard thing to do. All right. Next up. <clears throat> Mark Hansen writes, Hey guys, have you seen the Hulu trailer for Marvel's MODOK? It has a very robot chicken look to it. It really does. I'm interested. We need some good comedies to bring the funny with the new year. Love Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt is a national treasure, in my opinion, Rob. As simple as that. <laughs> I, I'm going to admit, I, I was charmed by the trailer. I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, it looks like it could, like because that styling can be very hit and miss. Like even just robot chicken itself. Sometimes I will roll on the floor laughing myself sick, but I can also watch 15 minutes of it and not chuckle once. So the style itself can be hit and miss. Rob, what did you think about the Modoc promo? I, I mean, dude, I just can't believe they've made a Modoc series, you know, and I look at it, 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 I'm in, I hope it's great. You know, um, I haven't seen it. It's not on yet. Is it? I don't, or is it? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think it's on. I mean, it, it, I'll watch it just because I think they've really embraced the idea of how ridiculous the Modoc character really is. I mean, it's it's a perfect case of like, um, if you were to translate that for, into live action, mm, could you ever make that work? Yeah, I don't know. I don't but, know. But, but I think that they've done it in the only way possible. And uh, look, I'm there for it. It looks it looks. It looks pretty hilarious, and it's it's Modoc. You know, you know who would have loved to see a Modoc series with stop motion or whatever it would have been John. Schnell. Oh, absolutely, he would have gone he crazy loved, for that. He would have loved that they made a Modoc show. <laughs> All right, let's move on here. Next up, we've got uh, Scott Pilgrim writes. Hey, John, longtime viewer, first time tipper. Thank you so much, Scott. Respectfully. I think you are dead wrong with your recast T'Challa take. Uh, well, no, I'm absolutely right about that. Just just putting that out there. Anyway, uh, really, picture the first trailer and John Doe is yelling Wakanda forever and interacting with Shuri and the gang. It wouldn't feel right. So what? 
course it wouldn't feel right. At first, in the first trailer, the first time we see somebody else as T'Challa, of course it wouldn't feel right. Well, Rob, do you remember the first time you saw, was it Gambon who playing uh, uh, Dumbledore? Yeah. Instead of uh, Richard uh, Harris. Uh, Her- instead of Richard Harris? Like, of course, the first time you saw somebody else as it, of course it doesn't feel right at first. 100%. The first time we saw, oh, who replaced Clarice in the second Hannibal movie? It was... Um, Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore, right? With the first time we saw Julianne Moore playing Clarice in the first trailer, like, oh, at, at first, of course that doesn't feel... For people who grew up with Pierce Brosnan as James Bond, the first time we saw some Daniel Craig guy as Bond, of course that doesn't feel right. I mean, the first time we saw... Uh, you know, Don Cheadle as Rhodey instead of Terrence Howard. At first, it doesn't feel right. Of course, it doesn't feel right at first. But you don't say, you know what? The first trailer we do when people first see somebody else's T'Challa won't feel right. Well, better throw the character away then. Better throw away T'Challa. Just toss the whole character out. Might as well. That's that's not why you don't do that. That's not why you don't. Now, listen, I completely... I won't go into my whole thing. I've already laid out my complete manifesto about why it is absolutely, it would have been the absolute correct and right thing to do to recast the character T'Challa. But, so I won't go through it all again, but, you know, I, I also respect what Kugler and Feige, because you know, it's whatever decisions they make, even whether I agree with them or not, their decisions are coming from the right place. They're, they're making their decisions based on what they think is right. Even if I disagree with what their conclusion is, I respect that they're making decisions based on what they think was right. And Rob, listen, at the end of the day, it's going to work. If they recast it, it totally would have worked. But they're not recasting it. It's still Ryan Coogler. It's still Kevin Feige. They're going to find a way to make it work anyway. So, yeah, but I, I don't think you can discount the idea of, well, you can't recast him because when you see the first trailer and see somebody else T'Challa, it's not going to feel right. Well, of course it's not. That's going to be the case anytime you have to swap out actors. But we move past it and we, our brains adjust and we get on board with it. It's like, okay, that guy is now Dumbledore. Now, Richard Harris was a great Dumbledore. He was awesome as Dumbledore, but he's not Dumbledore anymore. And our brains adjust and then pretty soon we were totally good with it. So I don't know, Rob, how would you respond to that? Well, I, I mean, you know, it's, I always give the benefit of the doubt to the creators. And and in this case, boy, uh, talk about a, a situation fraught with peril in terms of what Marvel is going to do. And, because there's a lot of people, I mean, as we all know, Black Panther meant a lot to a lot of people. Seeing that kind of representation, seeing that kind of uh, a, a, an actor like Chad Bozeman taking on that role and the fact that they are moving forward with a Black Panther 2, boy, I, I, I can't think, John, of a more thankless job to have. And, you know, Ryan Coogler's got so much to live up to. He's got to honor the movie that he made already. He has to honor the legacy of Chad Bozeman and the idea of, well, how do you move forward in the MCU? What do you do with the Black Panther character? And they've said, you know, they're not recasting, but I... I'm excited because I think this is an opportunity. You know, we've talked about on the show. I think they're going to introduce a new a new character. Yes, I, I, I agree. I agree. It's going to take on the mantle. And I'll tell you, from a creative standpoint, 
Uh, I think it's going to be an actor that we don't yet know. And I think that there is, a, in a way, it's, it's, it could be very liberating. It could be very freeing because in doing so, you're baking into the story itself the idea of, of succeeding the person who came before. So you, you're not if, – if, if the role was replaced instead of creating a new character, then people could compare and contrast. But, but the idea of honoring – the legacy of the character and in you're, you're not just honoring the T'Challa in the movies, but you're honoring the legacy of Chad Bozeman and everything that he brought and the way he lived his life, knowing he was suffering from this disease, the story itself, having a new character that can be a part of the story. And it feels like a legitimate part of the story. So in a way you've got a meta narrative that you've got a new character into the MCU. That's, great from a creative standpoint, but at the same time, you're honoring Chad Bozeman's legacy and the fans and the people that love that movie and that it meant so much to them. So it's a tough call, man, but I think they've figured it out. I think they know what they're doing and I think it's going to work wonderfully well. It's, it's going to work. It's, it's absolutely going to work. I fully agree. I just think it would have been better to to recast and continue on the legacy of T'Challa. But you're right. They're going to find a way to make it work. They're going to bring in a new character. Or, I mean, even if they do crown an M'Baku or, or a Nakia or, or one of the other characters as a new Black Panther, whatever they do, it's going to work because it's Ryan Coogler and it's Kevin Feige, and they're going to find a way to make it work. And uh, let's just look forward to see what they're going to do. All right, next up. Um, Captain Blue Pants writes, John, I think you misunderstood my phase four, phase five comment. I didn't mean it in terms of storyline and themes. I meant it in the exact way you said it, uh, as in the sizzle reel was just showing the release of the next two to three years. So stuff post 2023 wouldn't be. Oh, I agree. And, and, and by the way, I still think there's might be one or two more things in 2023. It'll just be after probably fantastic four. So if that's what you meant, I wish you had worded it that way, but yes, I, I with that, I completely agree with you on that. Captain Blue Pants. All right. Scott Pilgrim. Uh, opinion on Scott Pilgrim and Dolby Cinemas at AMC. Really think the movie was ahead of its time visually, so I think it's really fitting to get it out in that format. Listen, I I had never understood. I remember the first time I saw Scott Pilgrim versus the World. I saw it at Comic Con. Uh, they did an early screening for it there, and I re it's one of those times that I thought, oh my god, everybody's going to love this. I mean, obviously that's hyperbole, not everybody, but I, but for the most part, everybody's going to love this. I've always been shocked to hear about how many people did not like Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I thought it was awesome. I loved that movie. And you're right. I agree. I think it was a little bit ahead of its time. Anyway, Rob, what are your quick thoughts on it? Do you feel like Scott Pilgrim was ahead of its time or do you, I don't know, do, was it perfect for a sign? I don't know. What do you think? You know, I, we just covered that. I just did an episode of our whining about movies on Scott Pilgrim celebrating its anniversary. I think it's a beautifully made and beautifully cast but deeply flawed movie. And I think the flaw in it is it becomes very one note. And uh, it, it disappoints me because there's no – I felt this when I first saw the movie when it opening weekend and I felt it watching it again now. It's so beautifully made. Edgar Wright – directed the hell out of Scott Pilgrim. There's so many interesting flourishes and transition and transitions and just cool stuff, but the expo the the uh ex the X's, the seven evil X's, you know, you never feel that there's anything really at stake. And Scott Pilgrim, he doesn't particularly lose anything, and during these battles, 
he just wins every one of them. So I think the film has a certain level of monotony in it. But again, it's also a ground zero generational movie. There are people, I think, that embraced it. The combination of 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 graphic novels and video games and and movies. I mean, I think for the people that saw it at a certain age, Scott Pilgrim is like as important as say a John Hughes movie like The Breakfast Club was to youth audiences of 1985. I think the audience that embraced Scott Pilgrim in 2010, I think it's a watershed movie for them. And while it didn't work as well for me as I would have hoped, I still watching it again, revisiting it, it's a beautifully made film and I certainly respect the craft that went into it. I just wish I just wish there were more emotional stakes. All right. Next up, obviously, I I just I loved it. I thought it had all of that, but there are a lot of people who agree with you on that, Rob. Like a lot of people agree with you. All right, next up, uh, Night Train writes: As an African American, I can also agree. I don't need a black Superman. We already have one in DC. His name is Icon. A lot of people have been talking about Icon lately. Uh, yeah. Bringing in, uh, bring in the Dakotaverse characters. Diversity can be organic instead of Warner Brothers. Instead, Warner Brothers chooses to pander. Listen, let me let me address this for a second. I reject that completely. People who have an agenda will bring out words like pander and things like that because you want to ascribe what you want their reasons to be when the reality is you don't know what their reasons are. You make an assumption. Why are they – Why are they? Do, and by the way, let me just preface all this by saying I am more of a traditionalist. If I was the head of Warner Brothers and I was making another Superman movie, I would probably go with the more traditional Superman. That's what I would do. But – I'm also completely open for mixing things up and trying different things. And I find that people generally who have an agenda will pull out words like pander. It's like, that's funny. I don't remember Warner Brothers ever saying we're doing this because we're pandering. But you want that to be the narrative. And so they keep throwing that word out there. You know, when they came out and made Hugh Jackman Wolverine, who is clearly not four foot 11. I don't know if you guys <laughs> knew this or not, but Hugh Jackman is not four foot 11. Just want to let you guys know that he's like six, two or something like that. Anyway, nobody whined to complain. They're pandering to tall people. They're Fox is just pandering to tall people. That's what they're doing. They're pandering. They're pandering to tall. No, you just new look. They, they just want this movie version to be different. They want it to be different. They they're going to, they're going in a different direction to it. They're not pandering to tall people. They're doing something different. We have had, a dozen or more live on screen iterations of Superman, Rob, a dozen or more, everything from George Reeves to Christopher Reeve, uh, whoever, you know, Superman and Lois was, you know, uh, Dean Cain to, to, uh, you know, a Smallville Superman to Henry Cavill, Superman to whatever. We've had many iterations of Superman and they're going to try something different. They're going to try something different. I find it interesting, Rob, that a lot of times when different shows or movies or whatever just decide to try something different, for the most part, we just go, okay, we go try something different because we as movie audiences are smart enough to know if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, it doesn't work. It'll be lost. It'll be lost in history. No big deal. Yeah, like the uh, Colin Farrell. What was the Arnold Schwarzenegger reboot that Colin Farrell did? Was it not Total Running Re Man? Total Recall. Total Recall, right? So they did Total Recall. 
Did the universe collapse in and of itself? No. It came. It didn't really work for most people. And it just disappeared into history. No big deal. Because we as film fans are smart enough to know if they want to try something and they want to do remake and they remake The Fly and it worked and it's like one of the great sci-fi epics of all time. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. No big deal. It goes into history. But man, some people, when one of the things you want to try differently involves race, particularly if you're moving a white character off of being a white character. I just find it odd that so many people lose their skulls over that. It's like it it's like it presses a button in some people. Like again, to me, if I was heading Warner Brothers, I would do the more traditional Superman. I would probably make a white Superman. That's probably what I would do. But I'm also, you know, intelligent enough to know that hey, we've had what, a dozen incarnations of Superman. They're going to sure. try to do something a little bit different, and if it works, fabulous. We'll have a great new Superman movie. And if it doesn't work, Okay, it didn't work. We forget about it and we'll move on to the next iteration of Superman. But I find it really interesting, like people losing their minds over an (laughs) aspect of Superman that is not important at all to who and what Superman is. And I just find, and then, you know, they start pulling out the trigger words, pandering and, and this, and these trigger words start to come out. And it's like, guys, it's just a movie. They're going to, take something that's been done the exact same way for a long time and they're going to try something a bit different and if it works we can celebrate and if it doesn't work we ignore it and it passes on into history and they'll move on to something else i just find it funny that when it comes to black and white though i just see people losing their minds like losing their minds me i'm like i would have done it different but okay they're gonna try something cool let's let's see how it works let's see how it works if it sucks it sucks who cares? I don't know, Rob. You're, you're, you've taken a look at that. I mean, we've been kind of marinating in this now for months, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Where, where are you at right now on this? Well, I'm look, I'm with you. I'm like, it, give me a great character and a, tell me a great story. Period. That's, that's, that's what I'm interested in. Now, however, the filmmakers behind this are inviting these questions because they have decided – to swap out a character that was conceived of in a certain way and portrayed a certain way many different times. And they've decided to not make him Asian, not make Superman a woman. They've decided to make the Superman character a black Superman. And they found ta Coates, who is a firebrand writer, to write the script. So clearly they are not just swapping out the character. They are specifically addressing what it means to be black. That's what it's going to be. Otherwise... Why else would you swap the character? You can't you can't not address these and getting a writer that is known for his racial views uh, between the world and me, by the way, is a book that I've read of his, which I quite liked. Um, and I, I they they have opened themselves up to this uh, this kind of criticism and they know they have because that's what they're trying to do. And my whole thing with it is I'm all for that because, you know, you can't not gender or race swap a character unless you're going to effectively delve into some reasons that made you want to swap the character in the first place. And I'm, I'm like, okay, you want to do a black Superman story? There's a lot that I could see would be really interesting. So you've got Krypton, right? The people say, say Superman uh, comes from Krypton 
and he just happens to be black. Well, what happens when he lands in Kansas? I mean, like, and he's never had to deal with racism because they didn't have racism on Krypton. And this character is the most powerful person on earth. And yet the very place, the very land that he's landed in has had these racial issues for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he's like, I don't know what you people are talking about. What's your deal? Like, I'm from Krypton. I don't know what your problem with race is, but how does my skin color have anything to do with the fact that I can destroy all (laughs) y'all? You know? And I think there's a really interesting story. I mean, there's nothing wrong. We'll watch a movie like 12 Years a Slave and be completely affected by it, completely moved by it and horrified by it, and it'll win Best Picture. Nobody says anything. But you could really delve into some really interesting issues where what happens if the savior of mankind comes to Earth and a large majority of the population might dislike him simply because because of the color of his skin? And the same is true, like we saw it in Star Trek when there was a, there was a, in the end of Enterprise, there's an episode about a human Vulcan hybrid baby. And there was a bunch of people on the Earth that believed we have to keep humanity per- Pure, pure, and we can't let human blood be be mixed with Vulcan blood, you know. And and this is an this is interesting stories. These are the way that science fiction, fantasy, and horror can reflect back on our world in an allegorical way. And I think I'm I'm interested to see the kind of story they're going to tell. They might not even address the issue at all, which I think would be a shame because that way, what are you saying then? Why did you swap the character in the first place? But it would be. I think a really interesting way to examine and look at our world now, our world today. How do you deal with that? And if they tell us a great story and give us a great character, John, what's wrong with that? Of course. And I get it. If it's not good, then, and I think it can be, I think the fear is that it's pandering because in a way it kind of seems that way from the get go, but hiring a firebrand, I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates is going to turn in a script that is going to directly deal with race. I can tell you that. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I and want to it, see it. But again, Rob, it comes right back down to what you're saying. If they have a great story they can tell yes. by making a change in a character that does not affect any of the prime traits that in our understanding of Superman in the first place, a character that, by the way, is not white – Character is Superman. Kal El right. is an alien organism. He is not a, ca- a Caucasian human being. He just happens to have the appearance traditionally of a Caucasian human being. I mean, it just so why not take that shot, tell a different kind of a story, and let's see if it works. Because yep. Rob, what at the end of the day, what's the worst thing that happens? It's a bad movie. And guess what happens to bad movies? We move on from them. You know, yeah. like. Uh, uh, Halle Berry's Catwoman didn't end superhero movies as we know it. Halle Berry's Catwoman was a bad movie, came and went. You know, uh, Brandon Routh's Superman Returns, which I personally really like, but, you know, it, it didn't have the reception that a lot of people wanted to. And what happens? Just nobody talks about it anymore. That's what'll happen. I don't understand why that people want to die on this hill, that people want to put their sword in the ground on this issue and act like it's the biggest, baddest thing going on in the world. It's like you were okay with trying things out with a six foot two Wolverine. Why not try things out with a darker pigmented skinned Superman that could open up the door to tell some stories that they've never told before. So I don't know. I don't know. Again, and it could suck. It could suck. But if it sucks, it sucks. Who cares? But what if it doesn't? 
And what if, what if really it doesn't? Good? <laughs> you know, what if it's really good? And and uh, I I I'm willing. I mean, look, J.J. Uh, Abrams is not somebody who gives me a lot of a lot of faith, but this could end up being a really really good movie. And I I go into every movie. Movies are so hard to make, John. Why not just see like, okay, if they're going to make this movie, let's wait and see if it's good. I mean, it might be great. <laughs> so I agree. Until you see it, why why even think about it? Like worry about what it says. I mean, I understand we're going through a, a period of time where a lot of issues, whether it's Me Too or racial issues or all kind of social issues where people are trying to make, ultimately the desire is to make a more accepting, open-minded world for everyone. And I think that if you could have a Superman story that can address issues in a very cool way that ultimately is about the acceptance of all peoples, well, what what's more Superman than that? And by the way, this won't be the first time the, the traditional Superman story goes through some changes like that. On uh, Krypton, the series Krypton, which I didn't think was great, but I liked it. I like Krypton. Yeah. But guess what? Zod was black in Krypton. They did a black Zod in Krypton. I didn't hear anybody complaining that they made Zod black. Uh, in the new Superman and Lois show, which I am really enjoying, surprisingly, because I yeah. hate what CW did to that Superman, but I'm loving this show. And they've got a Lex Luthor. Guess what? Their Lex Luthor's black. I don't hear anybody complaining. No. Is it because and he's they're cool too? Is it because they're villain characters and it's cool to make villain characters black, but it's not cool to make heroic characters? I, I again, I, I don't want to ascribe. I don't want to put words in other people's mouths. So I'm just saying, it's not like this is unprecedented either. So I don't know. Again, it's not what I would have done. It is not what I would have done personally. But I don't need filmmakers to do what I would have done in order to give it a shot and see if it works. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. All right. Next up, uh, we've got MD writes. Hey, John, uh, as it will probably come up a lot between now and the rest of the year, just wanted to uh, let you know that Shang-Chi is apparently pronounced Shang-Chi uh, as per lead actor Simu Liu uh, tweet advising people how to say it. Yeah, I've heard some people say that, but we've also specifically heard Kevin Feige say Shang-Chi. Yeah, we've sp we've heard Sh Kevin Feige say that specific time. So I don't know. I'll wait until see them. I look, I, I don't I don't care. I don't care if you say Robert. I don't care if you say Robert. I don't I don't care. I mean, whatever. Just tell when you're ready to tell me when the movie is ready to tell me how it's supposed to be said. Great. That's what we'll go with. But I've heard Kevin Feige say Shang-Chi. I've heard other people saying Shang-Chi. I don't care. I've only ever read the name. I've never really heard it said out loud. So I don't know, Rob, from your understand, how I'm just curious, how have you always said it? Have, whenever well, you've I, read it, how have you said it? I, I've always said Shang-Chi uh, since I was a kid, you know, and it could be wrong. Like, you know, you know, I look at Chloe Zhao's name. It's not Zhao. It's Zhao. That's how it was explained to me. And I obviously I want to get names correct. And Chinese names are are different. And I think that um, the better off we we are in speaking properly when you can pronounce someone's name properly, I'd always want to do that. But I have yet to hear like a definitive answer. And I'm sure it's going to come down the come down the pike because when the movie comes out, everyone's saying Shang-Chi, if that's not the right way to pronounce it, we're going to hear about it. And uh, I'll have to change my lifelong way of, of, of saying things. So I'm open to that. But right now, for at this moment in time, it's Shang-Chi to me. Yeah, and again, like it's it's cool that Simu Liu is saying that, but Kevin Feige, the producer of the movie, is saying it differently. So when the movie comes and we hear it said in the movie, 
That's what I'll go with. That, that's yep. what I'll go with. So because right now we got two different people in Marvel saying it two different ways. So I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm going to go with how it's spelt for now. Yeah. It's spelt Shang-Chi. So I'm going to go with that. I've heard Kevin Feige say Shang-Chi. So I'm going to go with that. If we watch the movie and they say it differently, great. Like if all you ever hear people say, like a lot of people when they read my, my name, they say Campia. They, they always say Campia. And that's, but, and if that's all you ever hear people say, and if all you ever read my name and you just hear my name in your head is Campia, that's how you're going to say it, but it's Campia. You know, it's John, said differently, but if you never heard me say it differently, that's how you're going to say it. Probably. One of my favorite stories in entertainment was when they were shooting the pilot for Star Trek, the next generation encounter at Farpoint, the cast did not know if data's name was going to pr be pronounced data or data. They didn't know. And it wasn't until it wasn't until Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard on set while they were shooting called him Data that they went with that as that's how his name was pronounced. I never knew that. I always thought that was a great story. I love because you know they didn't know. <laughs> I love that story. So we'll, we'll see. We'll, look, we'll pre you know what I think we'll probably hear in a trailer somebody say his name. Yeah. And then once that happens, it ends the discussion. Then the debate's over. So because and to me, it's not even debate. I don't care. It's just somebody Marvel. Tell me how it's said. And then that's what I'll go with, because right now I'm hearing two different things from Marvel. So we'll, we'll see in the probably a trailer will name drop it. All right. Next up, uh, Hot Quality writes YouTube question. We are averaging about 100 views on per video, but one of our older videos hit the algorithm and got almost 40,000 views. That's great, man. Uh, it's years old, and the quality isn't as good as what we produce now. How should we use that success to let people know about us? Rob, it's really interesting that Hot Quality Content writes that in because you and I were just kind of talking about this a little bit pre-show. Um, we Because, yeah, it is strange how like an older video suddenly can catch on. It's like strange. Like I remember like when uh, something came up about Jason Statham once a couple of years ago, and then all of a sudden, one of my absolute oldest videos ever, an interview <laughs> with Jason Statham suddenly got like hundreds of thousands of views. And Rob, you and I were talking too. you did a, a video on the, uh, the star Wars script, right? The, uh, the duel of the fates, the duel of the Fates. You were the first guy to break that. You were the first yeah. guy anywhere to break that. And it continued to just continue to pile on views. So yeah. if you're a YouTuber, Rob, let me give him my answer. Then I want to hear what you would recommend. If you're a YouTuber and you're, you're, you're like hot quality here and you get a certain amount of views and all of a sudden you've got one older one that just explodes. There's not a lot you can do to parlay that into new viewership and, and regular subscribers, but there are a few little things you can do. One, unfortunately, YouTube does not give you the ability like Vimeo does. Rob, did you know that on Vimeo, you can upload a video and then it gets all the comments and likes and whatever. But if you realize you made an error in the video, you can edit it, re-upload the video, and you get to keep all your likes and comments. You can't do that on YouTube. You can't change your video at all. Once your video's up and it starts getting likes and comments, you cannot change it without losing all of your uh, things. But what you can do is YouTube gives you a little bit of a tool where you can put up title cards at near the end of your video. And you, I would suggest leverage that. Make sure that that video that's now getting, getting views like 40,000 now and maybe more, make sure you've put in title cards to go one of your, to one of your other primary videos 
or things like that, just to really utilize that. You can go in and change the description of your video, maybe put right up at the top. Thanks for checking out this video on popcorn, whatever. If you like it, make sure you check out our main channel, blah, blah, blah. So there are little things you can do, but Rob, would you have any recommendations for somebody, how somebody can parlay one video's big success into transferring those people over to becoming regular viewers? Well, other than once it goes, re-promote that video. You know, in addition to what you said, yeah. add, add, but start start tweeting that video around because whatever caught the algorithm, it's out there in the pop culture zeitgeist. Like you said, someone someone wanted to look at up Jason Statham, and suddenly your your old video gets traction. Keep throwing it around, and you know the more people see it, they'll come and they'll subscribe to your channel. But it's hard. Like sometimes, like I've never seen when when I had a a video go viral or something, as much as it might. It, it didn't translate to that many more subscribers, but you do get more subscribers. So just keep throwing it out there and doing what, like what you said, John, add the, add the end at the end, uh, put in more clickable stuff content. Yeah. All right. Hey, Rob, I know we kept you overtime here today. Thanks a lot for being here and for getting that last question in, but in the meantime, dude, before we see you again tomorrow, where can people follow you and your adventures online? You can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. All right, man. Thanks a lot for being here. We'll talk to you again tomorrow, my friend. Have a good one. All right. Talk to you tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only, the great Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett bringing his glory to you. He'll be back again tomorrow, so keep your guys open, eyes open for that. All right. Let's keep on rolling here. Next up, we got Bojax who writes, one of two. Hi, John. One angle for the Loki movie I haven't heard anybody specifically mention is not due to competition. Are you talking about them moving Lokis from Fridays to Wednesdays? Is not competition with Bad Batch, but because they want to spread out the conversation and dominate the news cycle throughout the week. For people like uh, yourself that do spoiler discussions or others that do reactions and write articles, etc., Doing that all on a Friday for both shows may just dominate the weekend, but spreading it throughout the week gives Disney Plus and its shows more attention. That's not a bad theory, Bojax. I, I think there's much more to it than that. But because, listen, the reality is I don't think, 10, I don't think Bad Batch is going to get 10% of the viewership that Loki is. And so far, I'm liking Bad Batch. It's it's weird. I, I've seen the first couple episodes. I've liked Bad Batch so far. I don't think it's great, but it's it's. I like it more than Clone Wars. Not as much as Rebels, but I like it more than Clone Wars. Anyway, uh, but it's not. It's got. It doesn't get nearly the attention or nearly the traffic that like Loki is going to get. So I don't really think they see that as an issue. But it could be a contributing factor. You know, you're right. There are a lot of channels that Disney relies on for free publicity that do weekly summaries and spoiler discussions and articles and stuff like that. And maybe they just want that spread out a little bit. I, I would suggest though, that if that was the, one of the primary reasons they did it, then bad batch would have been the one to move. Like if they thought Friday was the day, then Loki, your bigger show would keep that day. I don't think they saw Friday as being the day. So I, I think you could be honest. Some it could be a contributing factor, but I certainly don't think it's the primary factor because again, one sh show is so much bigger than the other show. But who knows? I mean, maybe we'll talk to Kevin Feige and we'll get uh, we'll get an, an opinion about that. All right, thanks for that, Bojax. Name of Crispy writes. Hello, everyone. Have any of you seen the Korean horror movie The Wailing? I have not. Uh, it is one of my favorite horror movies of all time, but never hear anybody mention it. If you have not, I hope you find time to check it out. If you have, what are your thoughts? I never have. But listen, man. 
the Koreans know how to do horror movies, man. They have for a long time. I mean, I've always felt like Korean horror films and some Japanese horror films and things like that, they mastered the art of utilizing atmosphere to tell your story. Like a lot for, for a good period, North American horror is getting better, but there was a good period of time where all the major Hollywood horror films in a certain period of time, it was like it all relied on jump scares and gory visuals, right? Whereas when you check out a lot of the Korean stuff, they would have some jump scares and they would have great visuals too, but they knew how to really make atmosphere sing in their movies. So I am not familiar with this one, but I will keep my eye open for it. Thanks for putting it on the list there, Crispy. All right, next up, uh, Genome writes, Hey, John, fan here from Burbank. I just moved out of Burbank. I love Burbank. I was wondering if you'd be open to releasing a three-hour video of your intro break song. Uh, I would love to listen to it while studying. Not sure if anybody else would be interested, uh, but I can listen to that song for hours. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'm not sure if you, I mean, what you could do is just uh, record the opening little bit of music and then take it into a looper and just have it loop. I mean, that's something you could do. Uh, but I don't think anybody would just in a three-hour version of that, like a Nemo, like a Nemo, like a Baron Zemo dance cut. Yeah, that would that would be something. All right, next up. Uh, M56 Smart Gunner writes, Hey, John and gang, wonder if you guys have ever seen the movie Bullfinger. Oh, are you, are you kidding me? You know how often I talk about Bullfinger? Anyway. If you guys have ever seen the movie Bowfinger with Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin and Heather Graham, classic, great movie. Steve Martin reminds me of you in that movie, following his dreams. Keith uh, Kincaid for life. Listen, man, Bowfinger to me, like every once in a while, I'll talk about like the top single funniest moments in movie history, right? And I'll often talk about the number one is, you know, in uh, Spaceballs, now Lone Star, you will see that evil will always triumph because good is dumb. Like that's my number one funniest single moment ever. But in the top 10, in the top 10 of single funniest moments ever comes from Bowfinger where, and it's all about the editing. I, the way I describe it won't sound funny, but you got to see in the edit. And for those of you who've seen the movie, you'll know the scene I'm talking about. Steve Martin is talking about getting this movie made. And he says, I want you to go out and get the finest, best crew that money can buy. Money is no expense. And then they do a quick hard cut edit to Steve Martin, obviously on the Mexican border going, come on. And a bunch of the guys running over the border, a bunch, a bunch of uh, Mexican immigrants running over the border and diving into the van because that's going to be his crew. Again, it is a visual joke. It's funny, but just, oh my God, I just laughed myself sick. It's so funny. The whole movie is great. Bowfinger is wonderful. It's actually one of my favorite Eddie Murphy movies. And it's one that even guys like me that love it will often forget about when we're talking about Eddie Murphy films and, and Eddie Murphy's legacy and everything. We'll often forget about Bowfinger, but Bowfinger is awesome. So yeah, I love that one. Love that one. Thanks, M56. Next up, Caleb writes. Uh, hey, John slash Rob, what is your favorite U.S. city and your favorite movie set there? Oh, dude, that's something we'd have to sit down and think about for a few hours. I, I don't know that I can pull that off the top of my head. Uh, mine is L.A. and Heat. How about International? Mine is London and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Thanks and bring on the filthy. Yeah, that's I. That's not just information I carry around off the top of my head. But I will say this. Strange Brew, Hamilton, Ontario, just because I'm from Hamilton, Ontario, or... Also, you know, the Ed Norton's Incredible Hulk, 
in Hamilton, Ontario. The big battle scene against uh, between Hulk and Abomination takes place right across from my apartment where I was living. I was living in this apartment. I could literally look off my balcony and see the set of where the Hulk and Abomination would fight in the street. That was shot in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, my friends. Um, so yeah, there you go. But my favorite city in the world is Hamilton, Ontario. So obviously those would be my favorite sets. Those would be my favorite sets. I'm a little bit biased though, of course. All right. Thanks for that, Caleb. All right. Next up, dad jokes writes a vital ingredient of Marvel success is a portrayal of consequences. Hydra reveal Sokovian accords, the snap, etc. all have significant impacts in the entire MCU. Also, even heroes struggle, make mistakes, lose, and suffer with the with the world because of events of their choices. See, here's the thing, Dad. I'm glad you bring this up. That is both the MCU's biggest strength, or one of their biggest strengths, but also one of the things that potentially causes problems. Because you're right. When something big happens in the MCU, it resonates throughout the entire MCU. Sokovia? You feel that and the effects of what happened in Sokovia and the Sokovian Accords throughout the entire MCU. The snap is always referenced. And the blip and people coming back, that's now all that's prevalent through everything going on in there. Major events are felt throughout all of the story. However, that can also be a problem. And this is what I talk about all the time, is that in a world like that, in a cinematic universe like that, it can creatively tie filmmakers' hands. Okay, so I'm going to do this movie, but in this movie I'm making, in my world, it has to be a world where half the population had been whipped away at one point and then come back, and we had this, and we had this, and we had that, and there's the Sokovian things, and this happened, and this happened, and this happens, and... It's like the filmmaker, well, what if the story I want to tell doesn't involve any of that or doesn't have, none of that is a part of the world in the story I want to tell. That is why I loved that DC made a Joker film that was totally separate from the rest of the DCU. That's partially why I'm excited that Robert Pattinson's Batman movie is happening outside of the DCU. It still allows you to have cinematic universe if you want it, but then it gives other filmmakers a chance to tell fully creative stories without having their hands tied to the events that go on inside of your cinematic universe. So I believe it is both a very, very big positive thing, like we saw in WandaVision and Falcon the Winter Soldier, but it could also be a hindrance as you move forward and more and more things build up in your cinematic universe. So that's why I would really love to see Marvel follow DC's lead a little bit and introduce one or two Elseworld kind of movies, if you would, if you will. Some movies that just tell some great stories that don't happen within the MCU. Because I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and. I think you can have both. And I think DC right now is proving you can have both. So anyway, that's just kind of my take on things. All right, thanks for writing that in, man. Uh, next up, Ryan G writes, Hey, John, you should check out a Young Rock. It just finished its season, and it's a good show. I watched a couple of minutes of it, only a couple of minutes, and it just, it's funny because I love Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but that show just doesn't look good to me. I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I'll give it a shot at some point, but I just, from the, the trailers, and I watched a few minutes, and it just wasn't clicking for me, but maybe I have to give it a, a better shot than that. Thanks for the recommendation, Ryan G. I appreciate it, because I've heard some other people say that they really like it, too. But I might have to check it out at some point. All right. Uh, Roll of the Egg writes, 
Hey, John and Co. Enjoying Mitchell's versus the machines. Uh, had to get used to the animation style. More fun using subtitles. Uh, ethereal music playing. Pokes fun at a lot of tropes and uh, a lot of tropes and Dave... F. I don't know what that means. I don't know what the Dave F parts means. Anyway, love your show as usual. Let the filthy come forth with a can of Zevia. And of course, I do have a can of Zevia right here. Um, yeah, listen. A lot of last week, people started writing in and saying, John, have you watched Mitchell's versus the machines yet? John, have you watched Mitchell's versus the machines yet? I was like, no, I haven't watched it yet, but I hear it's really good, blah, blah, blah. Finally, last night, Ann and I sat down and watched it, and it's it's great. That Mitchell's versus the machines is great. And again, I know it's Sony animation, but the highest compliment I can give it is that it felt very Pixar-ish, very Pixarian. And I mean that in a very, very positive way. Um, it was funny and emotional and heartfelt all at the same time. It is a, a wonderful little animated movie. I had a very good time watching it. I wish I could have seen it on the big screen though. All right, thanks for that roll of the egg. Next up, we got Jay Bling writes, I'll still be masking up and social distancing, but by the time you read this, hopefully Friday, well, it's the next, it's, it's Monday. We didn't do the show on Friday, of course, because of technical issues. Uh, in the words of William Wallace, freedom! Also, the reviews are quite solid for Wrath of Man. Uh, why was the embargo lifted so late? I mean, honestly, I wouldn't give it any thought. Right now, let's look. The movie industry is not back to normal yet. All right? The movie industry and the entire industry surrounding it is not back to normal yet. So let's not judge anything based on how they would have happened normally. So I think right now studios are trying to figure out, okay, during the pandemic and everything, how do we handle embargo dates? If we left the embargo date lift early, will it just leave everybody's minds too quick because we're not back to normal yet? Do we need to try to save up the embargo lift until a little bit closer to the movie to get more impact? I mean, I don't know. All I would say is right now, let's not try to judge it by pre-pandemic standards. Um, but listen, man, I loved Wrath of Man. I thought that movie was great. Not my favorite Guy Ritchie movie of all time, but it's a solid, solid, solid movie. It, it's got a few flaws, yeah, but overall, I was very, very happy with it and impressed with it. We get one from, did we do Jay Bling? Yes, we did. And yes, Wrath of Man, totally worth it. Go see it. It's a really, really good time. All right. First, Noel writes, hey, John, no question. I just wanted to say thanks for everything. I've been out of commission due to my second COVID vaccine. <laughs> yeah, that can knock you on your ass. And your show gives me life. Keep the filthy and bring bringing me warm, moist movie news. Yeah, I got my second shot because I keep hearing from people that the second shot, it might knock you on your ass for a bit, right? So Anne got her second shot the day before me, and she had nothing, like not a single symptom. Me, I got my second shot, and I was fine. But then later in the evening, I started getting a headache. And I had a, I had a not a not the worst headache I've ever had, but it, yeah, I had a pretty decent headache that lasted for a couple of hours, and then I was fine after that. Um, I had another friend of mine, her name's Jaylin, and she got her second shot, and it floor like it put her on her ass for like 12 hours for like 12 hours she was completely out of commission then i had a bunch of other friends who got their second shot no problems whatsoever but anyway man good on you for getting your second shot and thanks for writing in to say some kind it's good to have you here first noel all right next up uh let's see here uh where are we at uh caleb writes 
Hey, John and Rob. Uh, I just missed Rob. I asked today about two sequels I fear have been lost in development hell, Sherlock Holmes 3 and Baby Driver 2. Have you heard of any movement on either? Uh, which one do you think is more likely and which would you be more excited to see bring on the filthy? Well, as far as I know, they are both still completely being planned. And it is my understanding that both Baby Driver 2 and Sherlock Holmes, the intention is both of these movies are going to get made. That is my understanding right now. Uh, yes, they a lot of hold up. Edgar Wright's a very busy guy. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., even though he's not Iron Man anymore, for now, he'll be back. Um, but even though he's not Iron Man anymore, uh, him with his wife, they've got a new show that they're producing coming on Netflix that the first trailer dropped for recently. So they're staying busy. But my understanding is both of those movies are going to get made. Which one am I more excited to see? I really like the Sherlock Holmes movies. I like Sherlock Holmes 1 more than I like Sherlock Holmes 2. But I do like the Sherlock Holmes movies a lot. But I'm going to have to say I'm a little bit more excited for Baby Driver. I loved Baby Driver. Um, my number one favorite Edgar Wright film is still Shaun of the Dead. But Baby Driver may just be my second favorite one. And that's saying something because I like a lot of his other films as well. But yeah, I'd have to say Baby Driver is probably the one I'm looking forward to the most. But that's just me. All right. Thanks for that, man. Next up. Uh, Omnilander writes, uh, instead of Omni-Man or Homelander, Omnilander. I get it. Invincible was better than the Falcon, the Winter Soldier in every way, in my opinion. I disagree, but that's why it's, it's, it's all subjective, man. We all have different opinions. Better premiere, I disagree with that. Better finale, I do agree with that. Uh, better action, I disagree. Uh, better character motivation, totally disagree about that. Better emotion and jokes, totally disagree. Better twists, totally disagree. Uh, better antagonist, I do agree with that. Definitely a better antagonist. They wrapped up everything perfectly and was more consistent than Falcon the Winter Soldier. I would also say I agree with that last part. I think it was more consistent. Now, look, I thoroughly enjoy both. Like, I especially once you got to episode four of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, episodes one through three were, were solid. They were solid. But it was episodes four, five, and six that I fell in love with it. Whereas Invincible was more consistent. Like I was right on board with Invincible from episode one and it maintained that all the way through. So I the, one, the things I would agree with you about that were better in Invincible were definitely a better antagonist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and a overall more consistent because like I said, I was right on board from episode one all the way through to the finale. So to me, the people, the, the winner is you and I, we are the winners because we got both of them. They were great. I still personally feel like Falcon winter soldier was the better show overall. I think we give a lot of, I think we give animation a lot of passes that we wouldn't give a live action show, but that's just me. But it either way, it doesn't matter. I think they're both great. And I, I enjoyed them both thoroughly. And I want to see more out of both of them. So at the end of the day, the winner is neither Falcon the Winter Soldier, nor is it Invincible. The winner is you and I, because we got to watch both. All right, next up. Um, uh, please stream poker, John. I, I will. I, I will try doing that. Uh, what do you think is the best superhero show finale? Uh, for me, it's tied between season one of Flash and Invincible. Season one ending of flash with his mom still gets me and sorry, but I thought season one of flash and season one and two of arrow, even Superman and Lois so far are better than Falcon and the winter soldier. Um, I, I disagree with that. I, I think, I think episode seasons one and two of arrow are some of my favorite superhero television ever. 
But my favorite superhero television, it's 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 three of the non-big names. It's in no particular order. It's The Boys, it's Umbrella Academy, and it's Doom Patrol. To me, those are the three best superhero shows. And again, that's all subjective. That's just my opinion. But to me, The Boys, Umbrella Academy, and Doom Patrol, those to me are the best superhero shows. And that's all due respect. I loved the the first few seasons of Arrow. I really love a lot of the seasons of Flash. Uh, I really love uh, WandaVision. And I, I really, really love uh, Falcon Winter Soldier and Invincible and a lot of the other stuff that's out there. But for my money, Umbrella Academy, Doom Patrol, The Boys, in no particular order. I, I mean, those three series to me is... Those are the ones to me that make me say, let me look at the superhero genre on television saying, look at this evolution. Look at how it grows and it develops. And it's, it's just so freaking good. Those three shows are so good. And they're on three different platforms, right? One's on Amazon in the boys. One's on Netflix and the umbrella Academy. And one is now on HBO max uh, with doom patrol. And, if you have, if there's any of those three that you guys have not started watching yet, get on it because these are three very different, yet very bonkers kind of shows that really, to me, show the kind of things you can do with this genre, um, and they're all just spectacular. So yeah, do do check them out. And by the way, don't forget about you know the old Netflix stuff. Punisher with John Bernthal was great. Daredevil with Charlie Cox was fantastic. I mean, those were absolutely, those got to be right up there at the top too. I mean, not all the Netflix stuff was great. And you had Iron Fist and you had Jessica Jones and you had, um, um, what was it? Iron Fist, Jessica Jones. I wasn't terribly big on Luke Cage. The first half of season one of Luke Cage was great, but then it kind of fell apart and I never got back on board, but some of their stuff was great. So there's a lot of great stuff out there. A lot of great stuff out there. All right, next up. Uh, Wakanda Forever writes, Wakanda Forever, the greatest movie title ever. I don't agree with that, but it is a very good title for a Black Panther 2. The greatest movie title ever. I know film titles usually don't mean anything, but this time it's different. It's a way for Marvel to honor Chadwick Boseman, King T'Challa, and tell their story at the same time. It's a very good sign. I actually disagree with you. Wakanda Forever, I don't believe is anything good or bad. Neither good nor bad. But I don't think it's anything to do with Chadwick Boseman. Wakanda Forever is the battle cry that was used in the screenplay for Wakanda and Black Panther. It really doesn't have anything to do with with Chadwick Boseman, per se. But it is a very good title. Now, the title will not make the movie any better or any worse. The title is nothing more than a marketing tool. And I know there are some people who still get upset at me when I say that, but it's the truth. The title of a movie is nothing more than a marketing tool. Just like a poster is a marketing tool, trailers are marketing tools, radio advertisement spots are marketing tools, the title of a movie is just a marketing tool. It doesn't make the movie any better or any worse. That being said, I do think Wakanda Forever is a near-perfect title for a Black Panther sequel. I, I, I think it is a very, very good title. And will do very well for it from a marketing point of view as well. All right, next up. 
Uh, McDavid deserves better rights. You must be happy right now with the with the Oilers. Anyway, buongiorno, Giovanni. Uh, I just like to wish everyone a happy Calgary Flames Mathematical Elimination Day. Uh, it is the first time since 2003 that the Oilers have made the playoffs while Calgary missed. My glee is immeasurable and my spite is incalculable. You know, I got to say this a lot to my American friends. You think there's rivalry between the Lakers and the Celtics, that's adorable. You think there's an intense rivalry between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox? That's adorable. You think there's this hard edge, you know, the rivals of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens? That's adorable. You don't know the depths of passionate rival fandom until you get involved in the mix of the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadian fans and Edmonton Oilers and Calgary Flame fans. That is some deep-seated shit there, my friends. That is some deep-seated shit. Like, I grew up in a house with that. Like, I grew up bleeding blue and white as a Leafs fan. My brother, my brother Rob, Robert, Roberto Campia, my brother Robert, diehard Canadians fan. Die hard Habs. And so I grew up in a house, a house divided over that. But yeah, I, I'm totally, uh, it, is, it is a type of ri- rivalry that is passed down generationally. And when, ah, uh, yeah, it, it's powerful stuff. So I'm not surprised to hear that from you, McDavid. I'm not surprised to hear that from you. Anyway, congrats. All right, next up, Jake Smith writes, just got my tickets for Wrath of Man, Spiral, and A Quiet Place to What a wonderful feeling to be going back to the movies. And listen, don't forget, guys, this weekend, like, yes, it's amazing. We just had Wrath of Man open. We've got Spiral coming. We got this month, we've got Quiet Place 2. But don't forget that this week, the new Taylor Sheridan film, For Those Who Wish Me Dead, the guy who gave us Hell or High Water and the guy who gave us Wind River, his new movie uh, starring Angelina Jolie, for those who wish me dead, terrific trailer for that. That comes out this week. It's funny, me and my buddy Ryan were talking last night about getting our tickets for that. Because you know I'm going to that damn thing. I'm going to go watch it. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I'm very, very excited about that. All right. Next up, Ryan G writes, Hey, John, are you going to watch Jupiter's Legacy? As we talked about off the top of the show, I did watch it. It had some very, very good things about it. But overall, I was disappointed. Uh, I was disappointed with it, even though there are some things that are very, very good about it. Uh, Again, I would refer you to go back and and watch the first segment of the show today. But uh, yeah, I did watch it. All right, next up. Kylo Ken writes, I like that name. Uh, Hey, John, I just finished the first episodes of Jupiter's Legacy. I thought it was pretty decent. Don't understand why critics are crapping on it. Uh, Does it drop off considerably after the first episode? What were your thoughts? It's, It's not so much, Kylo, that I think it drops off at the first episode is that it never takes off after the first episode. You know what I mean? Like the first episode does a pretty good job. It lays out the table, it puts the plates out on the table and sets the table, but it never quite brings the main course to the table, if that makes any sense. Um, Again, I think there are some very, very good elements. Everything about the philosophical aspect of it and the principles aspect with the utopian and how he and the code he thinks that the union of justice should follow versus you know a new generation for a different world and that's all stuff that's interesting the flashback stuff was interesting but a lot of it fell flat on its face and again I don't hate it and I don't think it sucks 
I just was disappointed with. I thought it could have been much better, especially with all the strengths that it did have. All right, next up. Um, next up, Adian Foley writes, Hey, John, love watching the show during the satanic times. I uh, just watched Nobody. I loved Nobody. Uh, uh, where we go? I lost my spot here with Bob Odenkirk. It's just, he's so good. Anyway, I love seeing it. Seeing Saul Goodman kick ass is the best thing I've ever seen. Speaking of Saul, what are your thoughts on Better Call Saul? Honestly curious, thanks. Well, I, I've addressed this a number of times. I like Better Call Saul. I never finished it, though. I think I got like three seasons into it and I like it, but then I never got caught up. I don't know why. Honestly, it's not like, well, I don't like it anymore, so I'm going to stop watching. No, it wasn't that. It was just, oh, I liked it. I liked it. I liked it. And I got to the end of that one season and then I just never got around to watching the next one. So I liked it. I mean, not as good as Breaking Bad. There are some people who think Better Call Saul is even better than Breaking Bad. I don't quite share that opinion. But uh, I thought it was very good, and, and I enjoyed it. But yeah, Nobody is fantastic. I absolutely love Nobody. All right, uh, next up here, we've got, uh, where are we at? We're at Caleb, and Caleb writes, Hey, John and Rob, what are your thoughts on Kerry Fukunaga as a director? He's terrific. I mean, when you just look at what he did with um, True Detective, like just by itself, True Detective was mind-blowing and really good. Then you look at like Beasts of No Nation. Anyway, um, uh, hey, John and Rob, what are your thoughts on Kerry Fukunaga as a director? I love uh, him. He did Jane Eyre, which was the first time I ever interviewed him. My first interview with with uh, with Kerry was when he directed Jane Eyre. That was the, when I had my first sit down with him. It was kind of interesting. Uh, and Beasts of No Nation with Idris Elba and all of True Detective Season 1 plus uh, Maniac on the TV side. I was going to say, don't forget, he also did some TV. He's also doing No Time to Die and the trailers look great. Yeah, listen, I think he's very good. I'm not going to sit here and use hyperbole and say I think he's one of the greatest directors out there, but I think he's very good. But I think me, like a lot of people, very, very interested in seeing what he does with James Bond. Like, fascinated to see what he did with, to see what he does with James Bond. Uh, like, I think the trailers for No Time to Die look awesome. I've been waiting for a long time, not as badly as Robert has, but I've been waiting for a long time for this movie to come. They dropped another trailer for it recently. I saw it in the theaters, which is really good. So, yes. Very excited about it, and I think what he does with James Bond is going to do a lot to speak to what his ultimate legacy is going to be as a director in the world right now, so a lot of things to keep our eyes on. All right, thanks for that, Alan. Next up, uh, Alan also writes, oh, sorry, that was Caleb. Oh, that was Caleb. Sorry, that was Caleb, not Alan. Uh, next up, Red writes in, one of three. I have no idea to this day uh, what those two... Italian ladies were talking about. Truth is, I don't want to know. This is from Shawshank Redemption. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared higher and farther. This is when he snuck into the, he was in the uh, warden's office and played the record. Anyway, uh, higher and farther than any anybody in a gray place dared to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. It pissed the warden off something awful. Man, listen, I, I very rarely, very, very rarely ever use the word perfect 
when it comes to a film. Because even a film that doesn't do anything wrong isn't necessarily perfect, right? You can do something not wrong, but that doesn't mean you couldn't have done it a little bit better, right? So I very, very rarely use the term perfect. I'll use the term once, maybe three or four times a year, I'll say like that movie was flawless, but flawless doesn't mean perfect. You could tell a joke and it was funny and made people laugh, but it could have been a bit funnier. So it was still a win. Shawshank Redemption is a perfect movie. It's a perfect movie. It, it has it all and it is filled like a movie dreams about having one moment in it that resonates with people forever, right? Like that moment in Usual Suspects when Kevin Spacey stops walking with his dragging leg and starts walking normally and you realize that's Kaiser Soze. That moment sticks with you the moment in the sixth sense when he realizes he had been dead all along that sticks with you. Shawshank is filled with those moments filled with them. And that's one of them. Shawshank redemption is a perfect movie. It's it's, it's why it, to me, it is a top five greatest films ever made by mankind. It's just so good. And that moment is absolutely beautiful. All right, next up. Uh, that was uh, red. Next up, Isaac Beebe writes, Tom Cruise versus Jackie Chan. Who's the better actor and who's the better stuntman? Oh, that's super easy. That's easy, easy, easy. Uh, Tom Cruise is the better actor. No contest. Jackie Chan is the better stuntman. Tom Cruise is great and he does some bonkers stuff, but he will never be Jackie Chan. He, he's just not physically capable of doing the thing. Very few human beings have ever walked the face of the earth who are capable of doing what Jackie Chan did. So yes, Tom Cruise, an Academy Award-nominated actor. Tom Cruise is the better actor. Jackie Chan easily is the uh, better stuntman. Uh, no, no, not, not, it's not even a contest. It's not a discussion. It's easy. All right, next up, uh, Jay Bling writes, I use my rewards for a large popcorn and soda mainly to celebrate going back to the theaters uh, more than af after more than a year. On the flip side, it was a reminder that I don't enjoy popcorn at the movies as much as I used to. Hey, you know what? Maybe they need a little bit of practice to making their popcorn again. I'll tell you what, man. I remember when me and Ann and Aaron and about six or seven other friends a couple of weeks ago, maybe it's about a month ago now, we booked a private theater at AMC Theaters to watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Walking back into that theater, going to the concession stand, buying some popcorn and a soda, and Ann got some chocolate-covered almonds. It just felt like coming home, man. It just felt like coming home. So good. So good. So, yeah, maybe give your theater's uh, staff a little bit of a chance to get back into to the habit of making their movie theater popcorn. All right. Luke, I am your plumber, writes. So, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the first time today. I got to say it was okay, but the ending was great, especially with Brad Pitt and his dog. I don't remember your thoughts on the movie. Did you like it, and how did you like the ending? The ending is bonkers. The ending of that movie is completely bonkers. I mean, I the ending is terrific. Overall, I would say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, while Brad Pitt and, and Leo DiCaprio were incredible in it, like they were both incredible in it. Uh, 
it is not in my top half of my favorite Quentin Tarantino films. Like I enjoyed it. I liked it, but I wouldn't say it's in my top half of Tarantino films. I, I put like, I'd say it's better than, um, uh, what's the name of guys in the live chat. Help me out here again. What was Tarantino's half of grindhouse death car, not death car. What was the name of his half of it? I didn't think it was any good. It's, I think it's the least good thing Tarantino's ever done. Um, so I, yeah, death proof. Thank you. Jimmy 22, James, Jimmy 22 was the first one in there with death proof. Then Mr. Golf Wang threw it in there as well. Death proof. I, I actually, death proof wasn't good. I, I really, the car chase itself was fantastic, but that doesn't make the movie. Um, I think Rodriguez's part of, um, uh, of, uh, grindhouse was much better to be honest with you, but yeah, I would put it down in the lower half. Still good. Uh, better than Death Proof, definitely much better. I still thought it was enjoyable. Terrific performances, good, solid movie. I just didn't think it was great for Quentin Tarantino's standards. But, you know, you ask my wife, my wife will give you a different answer. And loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, that was one of the best things she's seen in a long time. But for me, it's good. Thumbs up from me. I enjoyed it. Great performances, just not one of his better ones. But that's my opinion. All right, next up. Uh, we've got Not So Super Soldier writes. Hey, John, uh, the last few movies of the Fox X-Men universe seem to be teasing Mr. Sinister as the next big bad. Do you think we can see a conclusion to that storyline in Deadpool 3? No. Or do you think Disney would want to scrap that storyline altogether? No, they're not going to do anything from Fox's universe. I really don't think they're going to do a single thing from Fox's X-Men. Not at all. Now, that doesn't mean they can't use Mr. Sinister. Mr. Sinister is one of the great X-Men villains of all time. And they very well could do Mr. Sinister, but it won't be a continuation of whatever was being done in the Fox X-Men universe. It would be coincidental if they did, but Mr. Sinister is a fabulous villain. I don't know why we never got him on the live action screen. Of course, New Mutants ends with a very, very big, heavy Mr. Sinister teaser, but we never see him on the big screen. I could totally see the MCU using him, but it won't have any connection or anything to do with uh, what they did on uh, what they did in the Fox movies. So no, I don't think that's the case. All right, next up, we've got Kara Black writes, I find it interesting that out of all four of the original Disney Plus shows released, The Bad Batch, an animated show, is the one with the longest episode so far at 74 minutes over the three live action shows. Yeah, and I think it was like 71 minutes, but whatever. Bad Batch had a very long first episode. Its second episode, again, is much shorter. Much shorter. My guess is, and let me be clear about this, Kara. I don't know this for a fact. My guess is they may have originally planned that as two separate episodes. And then they just decided to put them together since they were just one story. They decided to put them together and make one big uh, series premiere, I guess. Again, it's not traditional to do with a TV show, but I, I quite enjoyed that first episode of Bad Batch. I really did. I, I don't care if a first episode is longer or shorter. I just want more episodes. I, I listen, everybody knows that like with WandaVision, I was a little bit disappointed. And with Mandalorian, whenever a new episode of Mandalorian or WandaVision would drop, I'd always be like, oh yeah, new episode. And then you'd instantly see what the runtime is. And you go, oh, 37 minutes. Oh, 
33 minutes. Aww. 42 minutes. Well, at least it's in the 40s, but oh, I mean, that's, I would right? It's like, woohoo, new episode of Mandalorian. Uh, it's 37 minutes, which is still great. It would be great 37 minutes. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, it was really interesting to see that Bad Batch did do a really big, like a big intro, big intro. Then it started, then I got my hopes up that maybe each episode would be that. Then episode two shot that down, but oh well, whatever. All right, next up, uh, we've got uh, MD writes, one of three. Hey, John, I think Infinity War uh, was pretty explicit in showing that uh, Team Titan uh, threw everything at Thanos for, in his words, a drop of blood. They didn't have anything that could slit his throat. Uh, this is further demonstrated earlier in the film when Thor very clearly explains that he is going off to retrieve a weapon powerful enough to kill Thanos, indicating no ordinary weapon or blade could do it. That is not what that was implying. Uh, and, anyway, and Quill jokes, don't you think we should all get one of those? This is actually foreshadowing. Again, I don't agree with that. 3-3, uh, three, three, the Titan scene later, when, of course, they do need such a weapon and don't have one. Furthermore, the whole point of Thor withstanding the power of a star to create it uh, was to show just how powerful a weapon was needed to harm Thanos, even without stones. No, I disagree. And here's the main reason why I disagree, MD, is because who knows Thanos better than anybody? Thanos's individuality, his personality, his motivations, his physicality, his physical limitations, his biology. What character in the MCU would know more about Thanos than anybody else? Easy. Gamora. And probably tied with Gamora would be Nebula, right? Gamora and Nebula know more about Thanos than anybody. And Gamora knew that I can stab him with these blades. I can stab him with these. And nobody knows Thanos better than she does. Her and Nebula, nobody else in the MCU knows even more than Damaw would or any of the Black Order or any of that stuff. Nobody knew Thanos better than Gamora. And she knew I can stab him. Now, she's not just some regular human being, granted. And what else did Thanos say about Nebula? It's like Nebula came in here to try to assassinate me and she nearly succeeded. Well, what's Nebula going to do other than, you know, slit his throat or stab him to death? She can't beat him to death with her fists, right? So Thanos himself says in the movie, Nebula came to kill me and she nearly succeeded. And the person who knows Thanos and his biology more than anybody, Gamora, her plan was take these knives and stab him to death. And now she's more than just human, clearly. But in her mind, she knew that that would work. And so Thanos created an image so she couldn't actually get him. He had to throw out a decoy, right? So, yeah, I, I believe the whole thing about Stormhammer or Stormbreaker, it wasn't just that it's the only weapon that could possibly cut his skin. It's just that Stormbreaker is immensely powerful, giving the wielder also great power. So, yeah, I think the Gamora situation shows that if we're talking about knives and blades, he can be punctured. He can be penetrated. So, I don't know. That's just, it all comes down to your interpretation of the events of the movie, but that's, that's what I thought the movie was clearly saying. Again, when you understand that nobody knows Thanos and what his weaknesses and strengths are and what his limitations are more than Gamora does. And she believed he could, he could be stabbed you know, by the right person with the white kind of blade. But anyway, there's that. Okay, next up. Um, intentionally Anon writes, 
I know you don't do X actor, but this is about casting that actually happened. Well, no, to see if it's about a casting that actually happened, then it's not a theoretical. I don't like the theoretical. What do you think about this actor in this role? Like that, but actual castings, then we have something concrete to evaluate and to talk about. So, um, this is about casting that actually happened. Probably something you answered years ago on another show. Who was better Rhodey and who was the better Hulk? For me, it was Terrence as Rhodey, but Mark as Banner. Uh, I don't know, man. I don't know because the reality is now we've had years of Don Cheadle as Rhodey. We've had years of him as Rhodey. And we've had years of Mark Ruffalo as Hulk. It's it's difficult now at this point to separate all the movies and all the years that we've had Don Cheadle as Rhodey and Mark Ruffalo as Banner compared to the one outing that Terrence Howard had and the one outing that Ed Norton had. So it's it's difficult. Now you're getting it's it's not an equal playing field. It's a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. I'll say this: as far as the Banner thing goes. I loved both Ed Norton's and Mark Ruffalo's incarnations. They they do play them the play the character a little bit differently. They each play the character a little bit differently. If I had to say strictly Ed Norton's performance in that one Hulk movie and strictly Mark Ruffalo's performance in the first Avengers movie, like not all the other stuff that came afterwards, just the first Avengers movie, I might actually say I might have preferred Ed Norton's a little bit. I might have preferred, not Ed Norton's movie, just Ed Norton in, as the character. I might prefer him a little bit. As far as Terrence Howard as Rhodey and Don Cheadle, I don't know, man. If I was, again, if I was just limiting it to Don Cheadle in Iron Man 2 and Terrence Howard in the first Iron Man, I might lean Terrence Howard, but I have grown to really love Don Cheadle's take on Rhodey over the years, but that's not fair because Terrence Howard only had the first film. So it's a totally great question. It's a totally great question, but I am a little bit torn on that. I'm a little bit torn on that. All right, next up, uh, we've got uh, the Seattleite writes, Hey, John and Rob, uh, a martial arts comedy movie shot and filmed in Seattle, Chinatown was released on VOD this past weekend called The Paper Tigers. I've seen the trailer for this called Paper Tigers, uh, given Rob is from here, and obviously Rob's not here right now, given that Rob is from here uh, and you and Anne were about to move to Seattle, uh, what uh, want to recommend you give it, uh, you recommend it and get your thoughts? Yeah, so I have not seen the movie Paper Tigers yet. It does look very, very low budget. It looks very, very low budget. But it also looks really charming. So for those of you who don't know anything about Paper Tigers, and again, I'm only gleaning this from the trailer, but there is these three kids who trained under their own Sifu uh, and were Kung Fu masters and all this kind of stuff. And they were known as the paper or as the something tigers. They weren't called the paper tiger. They were called the something tigers. But anyway, now it's 30 years later and they no longer do that. And now they're all middle aged, a little bit out of shape, all this kind of stuff. And something has happened that is calling them back to be the tigers again. Again, it looks very low budget, but damn it it looked pretty good i gotta say it looked pretty good so i have not seen it 
But I thought the trailer looked like fun, so I, I'm probably going to give it a, ch a chance once I get a moment to do that. Um, anyways, I didn't read the uh, second part of uh, the Seattleite who writes, As an Asian American, I resonated a lot with this movie as it paid an homage to classic kung fu films while promoting Asian slash black actors. Funny enough, my favorite character was a white guy. I'm pretty sure I know which guy it is. Uh, hope you both see it and share your thoughts, please. Thanks. Again, I have not had a chance. I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to watch it. But the trailer does intrigue me, and I will keep my eye open for it. Thanks for putting that on everybody's radar, This uh, the Seattleite. All right, next up, Anonymous writes, uh, one of two. John, love all that you do. Thank you so much. Just did a rewatch of Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman. Can somebody explain to me why studios are so dumb? In my opinion, both movies were great. Origi yeah, okay, but that's the, that's the problem, Anonymous. Let me stop right there for a second. That's the problem. In your opinion, both movies were great. In your opinion, both movies are great. There's a lot of people that their opinion is very different that did not like those movies at all. Now, you're talking to somebody who shares your opinion. Obviously, you know what I think of Man of Steel. I mean, everybody knows what I think of Man of Steel. And I really enjoyed Batman versus Superman as well. But that's the key. In your opinion, both were great. There are a lot of hardcore movie fans I know who hated those movies. I don't know why. To me, it's crazy, but they did. But anyway, let's let's keep going with this. Um, in my opinion, both movies were great. Original release of Justice League, not so much, but it's clear Zack Snyder, uh, I understand the profit issue, but the MCU didn't start out with perpetual billion-dollar movies. Now, this is this is a misnomer, and we'll address this in a second. Uh, but the MCU didn't start out with perpetual billion-dollar movies. They had to build the universe. I really love the vision Snyder was trying to give the DCU, and I think it's a shame we won't get more of it. Here's the problem, though, Anonymous. This is what everybody always misses. Look. Too many people didn't like his movies. It's just as simple as that. Like, I can't, I can't mention, every time I mention, and I do say it a lot on my show, how... Man of Steel is one of the greatest comic book movies ever made. It is easily the most underrated comic book movie ever made. Whenever I bring that up, I'll get like 50 messages. Man of Steel sucked! And which is fine, which is cool. It's all subjective. That's the beautiful thing about movies. We all see them and experience them differently. But what people who like those movies have to understand and what you just have to accept is that a hell of a lot of people did not like them. And listen... There's also this, this straw man argument uh, that, well, it's okay that the DC movies weren't as successful as the Marvel movies because the Marvel movies had to build up too. Yeah, but here's the problem. When the MCU started out, the comic book genre of movies weren't the number one powerhouse box office genre of movies. The MCU built the comic book genre to becoming the number one thing at the movies. And by the time Man of Steel came out, Comic book genre movies were the number one most dominant thing at the box office. They didn't have to start from scratch like the MCU did. The MCU didn't just build the MCU. The MCU built the genre. The MCU literally took the genre from where it was and made it the most dominant force at the box office that the box office has ever seen. And it is in that environment 
that movies like Man of Steel and stuff of that came into. They had a massive advantage over the early MCU films because the early MCU films built that groundwork and made the genre the number one box office genre in the world. And everybody wants to very conveniently overlook that fact, but it's the reality. It's the reality. But here's the other problem. The MCU movies came out and people loved them. The DCU movies came out and they completely divided the audience. They were very divisive films. Much like, you know, new era Star Wars films have become very divisive. And that's what the DCU was. Now, you got people like me who really enjoyed them. Hell, I even like Suicide Squad. But for every one of me, there were one or two other people who hated them. And it's really easy for us now to go, well, Warner Brothers didn't get it. No, no, the reality is this. Warner Brothers invested a lot of money and a lot of resources into trying to make it go. The audience did not respond to it. The box office did not respond to it. And the critics didn't respond to it. They were 0 for 3. They weren't getting the box office hits that they wanted. They weren't getting the... uh, They weren't getting the critic responses that they wanted, and they weren't getting the audience responses that they wanted. If you can't get any of those three, then you've got to make a change. And it doesn't matter that John Campia liked these films. That's irrelevant, whether John Campia liked them. The only thing that's relevant is, do you at least hit two out of the three? Big box office success, big critic response, or big audience response? And they whiffed. They were 0 for 3. So... As much as I would give a testicle, well, maybe not a testicle, but as much as I would maybe give a pinky finger to see a Man of Steel 2 directed by Zack Snyder, I get why Warner Brothers decided we have to go into a different direction. Because instead of everybody around the world being unified in their love for the MCU, we've got a completely, Zack Snyder's, the Snyderverse is completely divisive. It just is. And it doesn't matter how much I like it. It doesn't matter how much you like it. You just got to accept that's the way it is. And Warner Brothers knows we're not going to have long-term success like that. We tried it and it didn't work. And we need to move on to the next idea. And we need to move on to the next thing. And listen, we'll always have Man of Steel. We'll always have Batman versus Superman. But now we move into the new era. And uh, we'll see where things go. And hopefully Henry Cavill will still be a part of that new era. I don't know. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. I got, I don't know if you guys can see him. You can just see, yeah, you see, you know, always, I have Henry Cavill here. I've got my big Henry Cavill standee overlooking, protecting the studio at all times. Got to have him in here. Got to have him here. So hopefully we'll get to have him more, but yeah, man, it's, it is what it is. It, It just is what it is. And it's time for them to move on. All right. Next up. Uh, we got Ronin writes one of eight. Oh my goodness. Okay. Let's buckle down and let's get into it here. One of eight. Hey, John, I had an epiphany while watching the Thor movies. Bear with me. Odin was essentially a war criminal who was very remorseful by the third film. In the first Thor, it was discovered that Odin kidnapped Loki from the frost giants and deceived him for however many years. Well, I mean, you could argue he saved Loki, but Whatever. Uh, It was discovered in Thor 3, the original firstborn was Hela. My theory is, when Odin banished Thor to Midgard, it was necessary for his actions 
uh, but because he either saw himself or Hela in him and would prefer Thor put his sights on a new path. In Thor 2, it begins with Odin explaining the Dark Elves, who in my opinion was looking to make universe resemble the darkness in which they came from. I saw the same motives in him as I did in General Zod, uh, turning Earth into Krypton, but... It makes me wonder what the motives of Bor and Odin were to attempt to wipe out all of the Dark Elves, to wipe all the Dark Elves out of existence. Were they all bad? Maybe they were. Maybe that extinction had a little bit more, maybe that extinction had a little bit more to do with a power grab than just simply destroying uh, cosmic Nazis. Then that leads us to Thor 3, where one of the underlying stories is Hela, who helped Odin conquer and possibly imperialize all of what, uh, all that was required to maintain power. However, when she became too bloodthirsty, Odin imprisoned her. I see the situation in two ways. On one hand, she was crazy and needed to be stopped, but on the other hand, she was encouraged to conquer and crush all that opposed the mighty Asgardian Empire. I do believe Odin felt remorseful and guilty since the first Thor, and by Ragnarok, he knew his past transgressions would result in the destruction of Asgard. However, even with all this, uh, even with all he and his family have done, Odin raised Thor to lead the Asgardian people, considering he was his only non-evil child. If all, if all what I said was remotely true, then Odin has a significant has a significant story arc in each film which no one really cared about. I'm a sucker for motives behind characters' actions. Well, I know it's a lot, but what are your thoughts on any one of those points? Thanks. All right, let's let's unpack this a little bit. I think any good story with a monarch or a ruler who has ruled for a long period of time, you are going to have a ruler that has regrets, Right? You can't rule an entire world and try to maintain order and balance in all of the realms. Like, don't forget, when we saw the, the Frost Giants at the beginning of the first Thor, like attacking Earth, who came to Earth's rescue? It was Odin. Odin came to stop the Frost Giants. Uh, what, what's, and what's the name of their world? Uh, is it Jotunheim or is Jotunheim Earth? No, Earth is Midgard. So yeah, I think the Frost Giants are from Jotunheim. Anyway, so he took the child. Was that his punishment or was that his kind of a way to keep the peace? Or was he just saving the kid? Was he being evil? Ha ha ha, I'm going to steal that child. I don't know. I, I don't know. His motivations were unclear. The Thor 3 also seemed to make it clear that Yes, he had Hela working with him, but she went mad and she went, she was evil. And he was like, you got to be stopped. She wanted to conquer the universe for Asgard. And like Odin was, we're not about that and eventually imprisoned her away. But I agree with you that at the end of the day, when you have somebody who has ruled with all the responsibilities that Odin has, as long as he has, he's going to have blood on his hands. And he's going to have things that he probably regrets. But at the end of the day, did he do far more good than he do bad? Does the things he was grateful that he had done outweigh the things that he regrets that he did? But any good story of a good ruler like Odin, that has to be a part of it. There has to be skeletons in the closet. There has to be some regrets. There has to be things he wished he had done differently. 
But I mean, it's tough for any ruler of earth of any, for any mayor of a city or any senator or premier of a, of a province to rule for six months and not make mistakes and not have regrets. So imagine being Odin, who has like ruled for thousands and thousands of years. So that has to be a part of it. But no, I, I don't think he was a war criminal. I don't think Odin was a war criminal. I don't quite see it as that. But motivation, maybe in sending Thor away, he was a little bit afraid. He saw a little bit of Hela starting to spark up in it with all of his defiance and all of his pompousness and all of his, you know, conceitedness and all that. Maybe, maybe he was worried. He was seeing the wrong things in himself coming out in Thor instead of his better care. I mean, that could all be a part of it. So I love your observations, Ronan. But again, I think he, I don't, I still don't think that ends with him being a war criminal per se. All right, guys, last question we're going to do today. And then we're going to call it a day. We're going to take one here from uh, Sir Ivan Bennett, who writes, Hey guys, I know you complain about Spider-Man being Iron Man Jr., but did you know that this was Sony uh, Sony slash Avi Arad's fault? Apparently, they wanted to milk the Stark connection for all it was worth and stopped Feige from using Uncle Ben. Well, I had heard, I had heard, but I don't know if it's true. I had heard that it was Sony that stopped Kevin Feige, that Feige originally wanted to have an Uncle Ben character in Spider-Man Homecoming. And I had heard that Sony kiboshed that. And Sony said, no, you can't do that. We've gone back to the, we've gone back to the Uncle Ben thing too many times. We want to start past that. We want this Spider-Man story to start past that. Now, I have heard that, but I don't know if that's true. Okay, let's be very, very clear about that. I don't know that that's true. But let's for a moment assume that it's true. Then I think Sony was absolutely right. I think, I think Sony put, made the right move in saying, listen, we've, they've, we've already done Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben has been done to death. Let's start this new Spider-Man past that point. Uh, if that's the case, and if that's true, and I don't know that it is true, but if it is true, then that is that is one of many great benefits of Sony and Marvel partnering together to do these Spider-Man things, because I think Sony just made the movie a little bit better by not having another uncle Ben character. Like I get it. We've been there. We've done that. How many times do we have to see uncle Ben die and say with great power comes great responsibility. We just saw two uncle Ben's in the previous 10 years. Do we need to see another one already? And I'm sort of glad that they did that. But again, I don't know if that's true. As far as the, Spider-Man, Iron Man Jr. outfit. I, I've not heard that Avi Arad would force that on Kevin Feige. I've not heard that. So this is the first time I'm hearing that. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Either way, look, I know the Spider-Man, Iron Man Jr. suit looks really cool. I don't dispute that. I just don't like the idea that they had to make Spider-Man a little Iron Man Jr. I, I just, Spider-Man is cool enough and has enough superpowers to save the day on his own, but anyway, that, that's just me. All right, guys, listen, there are still a couple more questions to come from Murray, Reich, uh, Edmund, uh, Tyler, Anthony, and uh, we will start tomorrow's show with those questions. We're just about all caught up here, so we will start tomorrow's live questions part of the show with those, and we should actually blow through all of them tomorrow, so we should be good. Anyway, guys, 
That'll do it for today's installment of the John Campion Show. This was a long one. We're at two hours and 45 minutes today. Thank you so much for making this show part of your day. Thanks to Robert Meyer Burnett for coming along for so much of it and giving his glory and greatness to the show. Special thank you to all of you guys who sent in those live questions using the tip link. Number one, because you give us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And all of us here involved with the John Campion Show, thank you guys very, very much for that support. Okay, guys, remember to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me for now, guys. Until tomorrow, my name's John Campia, and until then, my friends, bye-bye.